Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, Longheads. We know you're listening. This is Brothers of the Serpent Podcast. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, angels and demons and monsters and serpents to Brothers of the Serpent Podcast, coming to you not live from the 10 by 10 by 10 tangent cube of science, nestled amongst the dusty bones of an ancient seabed high atop the Edwards Plateau, which is being in the process of being flooded, Yeah, turning it back into a sea. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Soon we'll just be a collection of islands. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. So we got a great episode uh, for you today. Uh, Going to be about a whole bunch of. I've been doing all this research on the the what's called the fairy faith in Celtic countries. It's a it's a massive book that was written in the 1900s. Uh, but first, as always, we are joined by our good friend and longhead, Mr. Brett England, from deep beneath his secret space station out in outer space. How are you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. I'm uh, I'm super excited for this show. It's something that I. Uh, know just enough about to be interested but not really enough to claim that i know anything about it the, so the I'm, fairy I'm super faith, stoked. the fairy faith stuff oh yeah 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 uh, yeah it is it is a fascinating subject that touches on many of the things that the topics that we talk about on this show the fae book <laughs> yeah the fae <laughs> where do you guys get a load of my like terrible accents i'm gonna throw you when I'm reading the these stories. <laughs> but first as always we have space weather news Arctic oh, auroras. Dang. Yeah, you didn't have this. You didn't do the, the music. I was sitting in here, not doing thinking, anything, <laughs> thinking about there was something I was supposed to do, and I was like, I don't know what it is, so I will just sit here and think about what I was supposed to do. <laughs> Arctic aurora is likely this week. An irregular hole in the sun's atmosphere is spewing a stream of solar wind towards Earth. Estimated time of arrival: October twenty fourth. High-latitude sky watchers should be alert for auroras when the gaseous material arrives. A bright full moon on October 24th will add its luminosity to that of the geomagnetic storm, creating some nice landscape photo ops around the Arctic Circle. If we have any listeners in the Arctic Circle, just pay attention. <laughs> Beware. <laughs> also, something wicked green this way comes. A green ball of gas wider than the planet Jupiter is approaching Earth. Its name is Comet 46P slash Italian astronomer Rolando Liguistri photographed the verdant orb on October 18th using a remote-controlled telescope in Australia. (laughs) What? (laughs) An Italian using a remote-controlled telescope in Australia. Deep inside that green ball is a furiously vaporizing nugget of dirty ice. The frozen nucleus of 46P slash Wirtanen is only about one kilometer wide, but astronomers say it is, quote, hyperactive. Unquote. Like a little mm. kid. <laughs> it's, so there's no, way to tell, there's no way to tell which direction it's going to be going. Yeah. As many as 1.7 times 10 to the 28th of water molecules per second have been observed emerging from the comet's core. Just in case, for those of you in real Inda, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mixed with the water vapor is a diatomic carbon, C2, a gaseous substance common in comet atmospheres that glows green in the near vacuum of space. On December 16th, this hyperactive comet will come within 11.5 million kilometers of Earth, making one of the 10 closest approaching comets of the space age. This comet will probably become a naked eye object for several weeks during the holidays, prompting some astronomers to call it the Comet of the Year. Comet Wirtanen passes through the inner solar system every 5.4 years. Right now, it is near the orbit of Mars, and it is heading in our direction. Forecasters expect it to brighten more than 200-fold between now and mid-December, eventually reaching magnitude plus three, similar to the stars of the Pleiades. Stay tuned. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yes. <laughs> I always get I, excited for these comet predictions, and then they just never pan out. At least they haven't in the past decade. Oh, really? Yeah, like every comet that was supposed to be ama- amazing in the past 10, 15 years has just not been. Oh. Like, you haven't been able to see it without a telescope. I and, want to see the serpent in the sky. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Come on. Snakes. All right. <laughs> sky snakes. Sky snakes. Yeah, so that will be this Christmas season. That's what they're talking about, the Christmas, uh, New Year's season. So... Should be interesting that's, to see if it'll. We have a big giant green snake in the sky. That's awesome. <laughs> Which so, of course means, as we all know, that we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> the watcher says that we three wise men shall follow it <laughs> straight to pyramids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you got? Uh, I got a couple stories here. The world's oldest intact shipwreck discovered in the Black Sea. Uh, okay, so where where's the Black Sea? I'm terrible at geography. Uh, the Black Sea is like Mediterranean, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey. It's 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 north of Turkey. Oh, okay, just north of Turkey. The watcher's looking for it. Go ahead and the, read the story. The wreck is is uh, to the east of Bulgaria. Okay, and north of Turkey. So, all right, well, I'll just read the story then. (laughs) Archaeologists have found what they believe to be the world's oldest intact shipwreck at the bottom of the Black Sea, where it appears to have laid undisturbed for more than 2,400 years. Wow. The 75-foot vessel, thought to be an ancient Greek, was discovered with its mast, rudders, and rowing benches all present and correct, just over a mile below the surface. A lack of oxygen at that depth preserved it, researchers said. So that's pretty cool. The so ship- it has the the mass and everything is all in yeah, place. It's Holy like, crap! There's a picture of it. It's late. why did it sink? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was not bombed. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, uh, the ship is believed to have been a trading vessel of a type that researchers say has only previously been seen on the side of ancient Greek pottery, such as the Siren vase in the British Museum, and they have a picture of the vase here. And it, I mean, it it looks exactly like this ship, like the the you can sort of see the profile of the ship in the in the photograph. And then, of course, the profile, of the, the ship profile on the of the ship on the vase is looks the, same. the same. That's awesome. And the the depiction on the vase uh, is the the one where uh, Odysseus is is tied to the mast so that it keeps him from like going insane when the right. sirens are yeah. singing. OK, yeah. Um, so it's from the the Iliad. OK. I did not know that. But uh, anyway, it's pretty cool. They, they, they're going to leave the hole down there, but they took a, a small piece of the wood to, to have it carbon dated uh, by, a, by a university. And they basically didn't give an exact date from the carbon dating, but they said it's the oldest shipwreck ever found. That's really cool. Um, 
and this is cool. This they this, said it was more than two thousand four hundred years old, or something like that. Well, they're right? yeah, they're they're guessing that it's around two thousand four hundred years old. That's, okay, but it's still the oldest shipwreck, oldest intact shipwreck ever found. Yeah, because I know they found like you find like pieces of stuff all over the ocean floor that was a shipwreck, but it's you know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't say that the that the date two thousand four hundred years came from the carbon dating. Yeah, I know. That's why I heard. I heard I was worded. Yeah. So okay. So the watcher says the Black Sea attaches to the Mediterranean via a small channel in Istanbul to Constantinople because <laughs> you can't go back to Constantinople because it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> <laughs> But this is cool. I I didn't know about this. This is a a group of archaeologists that they're they're basically marine archaeologists and they're yeah doing maritime this, yeah maritime they're, yeah they're doing this uh, project. Let's see where it is here. They're trying to. De- you said they were trying to determine. They're trying to figure out what effect global sea changes, yeah, sea level says, changes. It was among more than sixty shipwrecks found by the international team of maritime archaeologists, scientists, and marine surveyors which has been on a three-year mission to explore the depths of the Black Sea to gain a greater understanding of the impact of prehistoric sea level changes. Wow. They said the finds varied in age from a 17th century Cossack raiding fleet through Roman trading vessels complete with amphorae. I don't know what that is. Yeah, amphorae. Those are the the jars, the classic Roman and Greek jars. No, the the things you make pot shards out of when you smash them. Those were the pot shards. That's right. (laughs) To a complete ship from the classical period. Uh, so, anyway, awesome. That is cool. And I'd like to see what... So the Cossacks were, like, Russian, uh, or from Russia, or the area of Russia. I'm pretty sure that's what the Cossacks were. So they they found a whole fleet, a Cossack raiding fleet that just I went guess. down. That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> like, oh, we're going to go kick somebody ships. down. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So I'd like to see what they're... You know, the results of their uh, sea level changes study. Yeah. You know, I'd like to cool. see I'd like to see just a just a like a point map of where all the wrecks are. That would be cool yeah. too, just to look on a map and see where all the wrecks are that they found. So it's the acronym is MAP, Maritime Archaeologist Project. <laughs> Archaeology Project. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> okay, so the other story I have um, is here's the headline. Inside Europe's quest to build an unhackable quantum internet. <laughs> this is an awesome story, and it's it it gets pretty deep in the weeds, but uh, on quantum stuff. So I'm going to read a couple of things here. Basically, the 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 problem with the internet is is that there's all these wires run all over the all over the world. You know, big pipelines going down at the laid yeah. down on the bottom of the ocean, and and you know, they're going through cities and anywhere you could just like tap into it, you can connect in, you can basically record the data that's passing by. Yeah. And, and thus, and no one would know. Yeah. No one would even know that you're doing it. So, so they're, they're planning to do this quantum internet thing and there, there's already some quantum stuff being used for, for this type of stuff. But, uh, let's see, I'm going to read a couple of parts here. I'm going to find them. Okay, so the laws of quantum physics, on the other hand, allow a particle, for example, an atom, an electron, or for transmitting along optical cables, a photon of light, to occupy a quantum state that represents a combination of one and zero simultaneously, as opposed to just 
either, you know, one or the other. Yeah. So like, it's, it's a superposition. Yeah. Superposition of one and zero. Yeah. Such a particle is called a quantum bit or a qubit. <laughs> when you try to observe a qubit, its state collapses to either one or zero. This explain or this. And that's hold on. That's that's a, that's qubit as in the letter Q B I T as opposed to C U B I T of the ancient measurement system. It's Q Q U B I T. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. As opposed so, to like the royal qubit that yeah, they yeah. used to build the pyramids. <laughs> yeah, <I think laughs> unless they were actually I doing think quantum. Making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> this means that if a hacker taps into a stream of qubits. The intruder both destroys the quantum information in that stream and leaves a clear signal that it's been tampered with. Because of this property, qubits have been used for quite some time to generate encryption keys in a process known as quantum key distribution. This involves sending data in classical form over a network, while the keys needed to decrypt the data are transmitted separately in a quantum state. So, uh, however, the, the approach has limitations. Photons can be absorbed in the atmosphere or by materials in cables, which means they can typically travel for no more than a few tens of kilometers. The Beijing-Shanghai network gets around this by having 32 so-called trusted nodes at various points along it, similar to repeaters that amplify the signal in an ordinary data cable. At these nodes, keys are decrypted into a classical form and then re-encrypted in a fresh quantum state for their journey to the next node. But this means trusted nodes really shouldn't be trusted. A hacker who breaches their security could copy the classical keys undetected, as could a company or government running the nodes. Yeah. So uh, they're, they came up with a way to – or one of their plans to overcome this problem uh, is by using quantum teleportation. <laughs> right. This may, teleportation of data using entanglement. Yeah. This yeah. may sound like science fiction, but it's an actual method of transmitting data. It relies on a phenomenon known as quantum entanglement. Entanglement means creating a pair of qubits, photons of light for this purpose, in a single quantum state, so that even if they travel off in opposite directions, they retain a quantum connection. Changing the state of one photon will instantaneously change the state of the other one in a predictable way, no matter how far apart they are. Albert Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. Yeah. <laughs> spooky. Yeah. Quantum teleportation then requires first sending a pair of entangled photons to two people. Call them Alice and Bob. And <laughs> 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 Bob. <laughs> Alice receives it's a little her, uh, men in black lingo there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alice receives her entangled photon and lets it interact with a memory qubit that holds the data she wants to transmit to Bob. This interaction changes the state of her photon and thus changes the state of Bob's photon, too. In effect, this teleports the data in Alice's memory qubit from Alice's photon to Bob's. So they have a little illustration depicting it. But you can check this. This is it's a great story. Uh, and I think it's a great idea. This is uh, MIT Technology Review. Oh, yeah. Cool. Technologyreview.com. So I just think it's funny. They're calling them qubits. Yeah. <laughs> Fair Yima. You should build a Vara and make it 300 cubits by 40 cubits by 80 cubits. <laughs> That's not very much data. Uh, what's a qubit, oh, Lord? <laughs> well, it's a quantum teleportation bit. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Uh, the, the whole idea of teleportation of information is a fascinating concept. Like... You always see in science fiction and various, you know, Star Trek or whatever, they're teleporting material. But the idea of teleporting data instantaneously from one spot to another without any kind of 
like what what Einstein said, a spooky action at a distance that this data gets from from point A to point B without passing through anything. Yeah, the weird thing is, is it's that intrinsic. That's happening all over the universe. Like, yeah, if you like, basically, when you look at a galaxy, all of the bodies in that galaxy are transmitting all of their data to everybody else in the galaxy instantaneously yeah. pretty much like yeah because entanglement the idea of entanglement if the idea of the big bang is correct then every particle in the universe is entangled because it used to be in in the, the, in the singularity in the super singularity yeah. of the big bang yeah yeah so that like again like this is going off a little bit but uh, I've, I've been listening to uh Jano cook yeah. I don't really know how to pronounce it. So the book. Jano. Jano. <laughs> Jano. What's up, Jano? Uh, we had a. Mr. Some, Cook. <laughs> someone. Yeah. I can't remember. Aaron. Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. Gave us a. A recommendation. A recommendation for, for, this, for book. this book. So I got it. I'm on chapter four. It's a large book. I think it's basically it's his entire website or something. Oh, okay. Put in a PDF document. Mm. Uh, pretty cool. But. It's, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh yeah, this this idea of the like how these forces in the universe are able to interact or or travel as they do. In other words, like yeah, like these problems with dark matter and all this kind of stuff. Like right, how how are all the bodies? How does this planet know what the sun wants us to do? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like the problem with gravity and how it travels instantaneously. Yeah. basically. yeah, yeah. Like that's. Yeah, instantaneous, and that's communicating a lot of data. Yes, it is. Yeah, to the Earth, right? Now. Right. And I mean, like when they're when they're looking at these distant bodies, and they know that this galaxy is is a hundred million light years away from this other thing, and yet they're interacting as though they're as though the the data is transferring instantaneously. Right. That's right. Right. The the interactions that that we observe are concurrent with the p- positions that they're in, even though the information take going from one to the other should be a hundred million years out of date. And it's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I agree that there is some kind of quantum teleportation of information happening yeah. there. See, that's why it makes me think that it's resonance. Like that, that the entire universe is in this resonant state where every, but don't, don't resonant waves still have to move. They have to travel, right? This well, is why a, I've always thought of the, we we used to talk about this back in the teens, <laughs> the but teen. in, a, in a standing wave <laughs> setup, like, like we were experienced experimenting with, with cymatics. Yeah. Like anywhere on the, the resonant plate, the Chaladni plate or whatever, if you, if you disturb this one standing wave over here, it's going to like pretty instantaneously change the whole pattern on the plate. Oh, okay. Is it instantaneous? I don't know. I yeah. mean, probably not on the Chaladni plate, but in in the ether is what I'm thinking. Okay, like, yeah. Like in other words, all the way across the universe, some something something changes. Like from from say, uh, and it shifts the entire pattern. Is what exactly. you're saying? Exactly. The 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 pattern shifts over the whole universe. Yeah. Faster than the speed of light can travel there. I think it's also I'm not necessarily saying it's instantaneous, but it's right. a lot faster than the speed of light because it's not actually a thing traveling. Right. It's the it's the the whole like if you look at it as one vibration and then you change an aspect of it, it's it's just like quantum entanglement in that like when you change this wave over here, this standing wave to from say the I don't know, the positive to the negative, the other one shifts shifts accordingly, yeah. 
Yeah, I, and I, I would be interested to find out what the propagation – if there is a propagation time of that kind of thing. That's that's an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. But I also think – the other thing I was going to say is like we, we used to talk about this back in the – like, you know, in the in – the, like when we were still – the episode numbers like the, in the teens, we had this – we had a couple of shows where I was trying to get across the idea that that our – that there's a lot of information that points to our whole universe actually being comprised completely of information only. Yeah. Right? And that's what I'm saying. So like we see all this – we see this information teleportation and that is another little piece of that evidence that makes me think that we live in a universe that actually is comprised of pure information. Yeah. I never quite, I don't think I've ever fully understood that concept as, as I, I, I don't I feel like you do. <laughs> <laughs> he, I don't understand. It Whenever you either. talk about it, I'm like, he, he's getting something that I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like we talked about the, the – we have these numbers. Uh, you know, I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but we have these numbers that basically inform the entire universe. Yeah. How is that possible? How is it possible that these, that these like extremely sp- precise numbers that, – and there's a whole list of them yeah. – inform everything in the universe uniformly as far as we can tell all the way across it? Yeah. How is that possible? That 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 it 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 implies that there is that 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 at least in some way our universe is based on pure information. That 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 you know pure information in the sense that it's it's a it's a string of data as opposed to actual material, except that we interact with it in a sense that we we perceive it as material, but really it's not. Like like you know the whole. The whole trope of like we're actually we're actually mostly made up of nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like all of our atoms are actually re- extremely far apart from each other, and the mm-hmm. subatomic particles in the, in those atoms are extremely far apart from each other. The whole like yeah. the the whole mind picture of like if you had a if you had a dinner plate and that was the nucleus of an atom, then an electron would be a p a mile away from it, the very first one. Like that that we're mostly empty space, right? Right, and that and then we've talked about how these particles are actually not particles, but they're like. Standing wave, tiny standing wave forms in something. Yeah. Right. That implies that it's actually just information, even if yeah, the information okay. is contained in the wave sets that you're talking about. Right. So yeah. imagine the entire universe as a big chelatney plate, but there is no material. It's just the waves, the compressions and rarefactions of the wave itself in whatever the, 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 the medium is. So the universe is actually just data. Contained in a set of, of standing waves within this medium. Yeah. Okay. Bam. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to point something else out too about this this idea of of you know faster than light travel or whatever, for example. Yeah. So imagine you have a dial for those of you now. Fiction. <laughs> you know, a physicist could probably maybe show up here and just like kick my ass. But <laughs> I'm just going to say, let's, let's say we have a rod made of, of pure diamond, right? Oh yeah. I know this. Well, a single yeah. crystal. Yeah. And the rod is however many feet long, whatever. Let's say it's six feet long. Yeah. And you put your thumb on one end of the rod and you push it. How fast does the other end of the rod move compared to yeah. when? Okay. So the moment the rod at the end of your thumb began to move, what is, is there the, a compression wave that goes through it, or does it actually move instantaneously? I understand what you're saying with that. Right, yeah. or faster than – does the other end begin to move at – Instantaneously. Or, or even, almost Or faster than the speed of light in it. Yeah, yeah, words, yeah. Right? Like, in other words, I'm pushing on this, this atom, and once that atom begins to move, it just immediately is already 
up against the next atom and the next atom and the next atom and the next atom. So yeah. I can actually move that atom at the at the far end of the rod faster than the speed of light. Not I'm I'm not saying that it's it's moving faster than light, but yeah. the transmission of the information from the first atom that I'm touching saying move yeah. is getting to the other end faster than the speed of light. Right. So it's displacement. Yeah. Like the displacement is faster. Yeah. The speed of light. So it would be the same in the in, in the. So I, 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 the question I have is like, so if we do the same thing, but let's say it's a big rod of steel, and I tap on one end with a hammer. Yeah. There is a propagation of time for the sound to get to the other end, and we can test right. that. So is that the same as pushing it? That the the propagation of that wave for the sound to reach the other end of the rod is that the same as as just pushing it? Would it, is is there a similar? You see what I'm saying? Right, the Since speed, we know that the speed of the sound, the or speed of the vibration, the vibration moving the through it, is it the same as when you push it? Does that actually have to travel to the other end? But this is what I would say. I would say that you're right in the sense that I think that the medium, whatever this medium is that is that that has all these waves in it, is the fundamental crystalline structure of the universe. That's what I'm talking about. And that all other crystals that we know of are following some kind of pattern that is contained within this thing right. and that's why they exhibit these strange interesting properties like piezoelectricity and, and so on and so forth and that they can propagate they vibrations. can propagate vibrations extremely They're conductive quickly. or whatever yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly all right so now that we got that figured out <laughs> <laughs> next mystery <laughs> i don't actually know the answer to that question but it, it is i wonder about that like it seems to me that it would be <clears throat> It would be strange if it didn't move, if the other end didn't move faster yeah. than, than the speed of light. But I yeah. don't know. Because, of course, you could argue that the longer or the bigger that you make it, I guess it, the so more it conflicts. Is, is, a, is a like tapping on one end and sending a wave through it different than pushing on it? Is that – because maybe it is. It, it could be completely different. But like, let's say that you had a, a – this rod of diamond that you're talking about, but it's a light year long. It's a light year long. And if I tap on one end, that, that sound, that, that, that the sound wave, mechanical vibration yeah, to move through that crystalline structure is going to take a certain amount of time. We know it's right. not instantaneous. It, right. it may be, it may be faster than light. I don't know. But if I push it, does it have to also do is that a wave thing. that moves to the entire thing in the same way? I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Because a wave actually... I don't think it is the same thing because... Because a wave... You're right. Because a wave doesn't move the material. It's just a compression and rarefaction. Right. Yeah. Because like the ocean doesn't move when it's got waves going through it. Right. But if I was on the other side of the ocean and it was a solid thing, if I pushed it... But hydraulics, like when you have a hydraulic cylinder... Yeah, yeah. And you push on one end of the cylinder, the other end moves out. Right. But that's not what's is it happening. Instantaneously? That's not what happening. That's not what's happening if you're... If you have a transverse wave on the surface of... of Water, right? Hydraulic fluid. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, but there's still a wave going through the the fluid itself, right? I don't know. We're reading the water <laughs> and trying to figure out. I don't what understand he's the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, this questions for another day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to look into that, but yeah, it's a. I guess. Part of that would be, you know, inertia is is part of that. Like once you like the, the the longer the rod, the more mass the entire structure has. Yeah. And thus the the harder the more energy you have to put into the pushing force 
to get it to move. Right. And that is already a, a function of of the entire, like the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you had a diamond rod to light your long, you would probably just end up smeared onto it in a little thin layer all the way across the entire thing because <laughs> it would have a lot of it would have its own gravity well <laughs> so <clears throat> yeah those are all those are all very interesting questions and the whole quantum thing i think that the quantum the the, the fact that the that the fundamental building blocks of the universe also seem to act on these quantum principles that seem to be information based is another clue that the universe in some way is pure information. Well, also when you think about quantum entanglement, then this was the reason why I brought this up anyway, that you can have two particles that are entangled so that when you change this one, the other one changes Yeah, is a clue that this is exactly how the universe is constructed. Right. That, that in other words, like when you, Whatever they have to do to the create space in, the space doesn't matter. In right. That. Whatever they have to do to create these two entangled particles doesn't matter where they move them. As they move them through the universe, the information of their position in the universe is being recorded by the ether, yeah. by the medium, so that when one is moving, the other one, it you know, it's their information. In other words, their locations in space are irrelevant. Well, it's not it's that the it's, state of the particles itself that are tang- entangled. The, that's what they say. You can move them wherever you want. I know, want. but my point is, is that that another way to look at it is that the the resonant medium of the universe itself is it the, is aware the, of where they are. It's the in, the information that's in those entangled particles. Okay, so that, yeah, yeah. So that it, when one changes, the other one changes, indicating that it is part of that that standing wave structure. Yeah, I got you. Right, like they are. Like you have to create them in a certain way, yeah. And then they are wherever they go in the universe. They are the like, in other words, they're connected by information, despite by, by that by that resonant pattern in the universe. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. I always thought of it as like that that, that their location becomes irrelevant in terms of their state. Yeah, but, that, I mean, but that's, that's true. a more abstract way of looking at it. what you're talking about. Is this is how this you're given an idea of how this actually may function? Yeah, physically. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. effect materialist. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not saying that the that the medium is material. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it might be consciousness. I don't know. <laughs> what is consciousness? Stop made trying of? to explain my ghost with quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back... Damn, we're already done? Yeah, it's the fastest two hours of podcasting. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will begin the journey down the rabbit hole of the fairy faith in Celtic countries. Shedding our skins as new information blows our minds. <laughs> Brothers of the Serpent Podcast returns 
for the fae folk. <laughs> but first, we're, we're gonna we want to talk about this. We're doing this mind experiment with an impossible object during the during the break, right? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So if you had a perfectly rigid rod that was a light year long, and you're holding it in your hand, and it was going out into space for a light year, and you swung it down like a sword, it would take a year. If the rod itself moved instantaneously all along its length, it would take a year for the light from the far end to reach your eyes. So it would look like a giant curve no matter what. Yeah. <clears throat> so it'd be difficult to tell what the actual rod was doing without observers all along its length. And even then, their information wouldn't get to you unless yeah. you're using like quantum teleportation, you know. Right. If you knew exactly that it was, it was exactly a, uh, a light year long, then you could – then you could basically watch the end of it for a year, and if it moved exactly one year later, later, you would know that the whole thing moved instantaneously, right? And that the information of your hand on one end was transferred instantaneously to the other end, even though the light information of itself right. did not get to you for a year. And this yeah. is what the watcher was trying to. to that, that was this was basically the question that the watcher had that we didn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I think the other question he was asking is if you had some object like that. And when you swung it down, if you moved your hand at light speed, would the leverage, the length of the thing, make the far end of it actually move faster than the speed of light? Or would oh. that make it curve? Because it couldn't. Oh, that's See, a good if it question was, too. If the far end was reaching relativistic speeds, what would happen to that part of the object? You know, so if you were able to swing downwards at the speed of light at one end, the leverage would make the other end try to approach. Right. And, and so it's, it should be, if the, if the standard model is correct, you should not be able to do it because the... Because the inertia of the far end would become so great that you couldn't move it that fast. Right. Because you, you know, wouldn't even have to move it, move your arm down at light speed. You could just do a fraction of light speed, but the but the right, curve right. could make the other end right. The like leverage somewhere in the middle it would be light speed, and at the <laughs> end it would be faster. Than right. Light speed. And that should be, if according to the standard model, impossible because right. the inertia would be too high. Supposing that you had the muscle strength to move the thing in the first place in a place where you're floating in space anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you grab this thing and try to swing it, you would just go flying off. It wouldn't move. But that's not the point. The, yeah. the, the interesting point is that no matter what you do, like with this, with this perfectly rigid rod, you swing it down, you, it's going to look like it's curving. If you're... No matter what. No matter what. Yeah. Because the light... Because the light, the further, supposedly... The light that's reflecting off the... The, the rod further and further away is taking longer and longer to get to you. So, right. it's so as you swung it down, you would actually see a wave of movement go out along the length of the rod towards the far end. And it would take a year for the wave of movement to reach the far end for that. Right. To move. So it would look like a giant curve. It would be it would turn it into a scimitar no matter what you did. <laughs> <laughs> so then we were thinking about about the experiment where they they basically proved uh uh, Einstein's theory of relativity or, or the bending of space-time, the curvature of space-time. Yeah, with gravitic lensing. When, yeah. they, when they looked at, at – when th there was a solar eclipse and they, they looked at the like edge of the corona or whatever and they saw light from a star that was actually behind the sun yeah. proving that it was actually bending the light around. How do they know that that light wasn't – they're like, okay, the position of the star is the same problem. Like where the right, position that star is, isn't actually there. Right. <laughs> the light from that star is not actually where that star is anymore. <laughs> right, right. Because it's many, many light years away. Right. So that, so all along the length of that, of the light of that star coming towards us is a giant curve in the first place. Right. 
Yeah. Every star in the sky that we're seeing right now, there's actually a giant curve of right. the light. Yeah. If you follow the light outwards towards that star, you would have to curve in the direction that the star is actually moving because, because it's not actually where we're seeing it. Yeah. Which is very hard to... Space is weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> I want to... First, I want to uh, I want to kick this off basically with uh, some explanation. What I've done, I've go, I've been going through this book, and I've been basically just marking off the this story because what this guy did, and this was in the 1900s, like like as in before World War II, he went traveling through what he called the Celtic countries, so England, Wales, uh, Scotland, Ireland. He went walking like. Walking through these countries in the countryside, meeting people, finding out who knew all the fairy stories from various people, and then going to their houses or going to where they were at the pubs, sitting down with them and listening to their stories and recording them. Okay, That's what he did. And so I've gone through and basically marked off and and highlighted the stories that I want to tell. And I just want to explain that he does, in the text of the story, explain to you why this person is reliable how he was how he was like basically recommended by everybody you know a lot of times he will go and he'll go talk to the to the to the reverend of the of the local church and find out who the oldest residents are who's reliable and who's not and whose word everybody believes and then go speak to that person so he's basically that's his way of verifying that these aren't people who are just making things up yeah that they're telling stories that they heard from their ancestors or that so as you listen to this keep in mind that he references it in that way. Now, all of this obviously is anecdotal in the sense that he's sitting down with an old person and saying, my grandfather's grandfather said blah, 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 right? But the idea is is that that he, to the best of his ability, and this is anthropology all the way, it's anthropological in the sense that this is how you verify the stories. It comes down to do all the people that know this person think that they're trustworthy, okay? And that's the best you can do. And he has done that, like, to a fault in this book. So I, I'm not going to read any of that stuff, but he does explain to you in the book how he has verified that this person is trustworthy and so on and so forth. Okay. Cool. So I'm just going to start going through some of these. Now, keep in mind that what, what, we're, what we're looking at here is across all these different countries, and he is just getting the stories straight from these people. And so it, they're, they're different, but you begin to see a pattern. Okay. So... The first one I marked here is a learned priest of the Roman church told me when I met him in Galway and also forgive me for butchering many of the names because I don't know how to say them. I know that they're not said how they are spelled often, but I don't know how to say them. Uh, Okay, Galway, that in his opinion, those places in Ireland where ancient sacrifices were performed to pagan or druid gods are still, unless they have been regularly exercised, under the control of demons. And what the Druids were at Tara and throughout Erin, and most probably at Karnak as well, the priests were in Egypt and the, uh, the Pythonesses in Greece. That is to say, Druids, Egyptian priests, priestesses in charge of Greek oracles are said to have foretold the future, interpreted omens, worked miracles and wonders of magic by the aid of demons or daemons who were regarded as an order of invisible beings intermediary between the gods and men and as sometimes including the shades from Hades. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, let's see. So that was, that was an opinion of a priest that he spoke to. So let's see. And he has his own theories on how all this works. So this is part of it. In most cases, 
As examination will show, the evidence is so clear that little or no comment is necessary. Most of the evidence also points to points so much in one direction that the only verdict which seems reasonable is that the fairy faith belongs to a doctrine of souls. That is to say that fairyland is a state or condition, realm or place, very much like, if not the same as, that wherein civilized and uncivilized men alike place the souls of the dead in company with other invisible beings such as gods, demons, and all sorts of good and bad spirits. Not only do both educated and uneducated Celtic seers so conceive fairyland, but they go much further and say that fairyland actually exists as an invisible world within which the visible world is immersed like an island or uh, in an unexplored ocean, and that it is peopled by more species of living beings than this world because incomparably more vast and varied in its possibilities. Yeah. Okay. So basically that, cool. that we that the material realm is a little bitty island inside this much more vast world that we can't see or can only interact with on a very limited level. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Sitting here looking out of the universe having my no mind No wonder we're missing day. most of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's so big. <laughs> it's a tiny island, folks. Yeah. In no case has testimony been admitted from a person who was known to be unreliable nor even from a person who is thought to be unreliable. Accordingly, the evidence we are to examine ought to be considered good evidence so far as it goes, and since it represents almost all known elements of the fairy faith and contains almost all the essential elements upon which the advocates of the naturalistic theory, of the pygmy theory, of the druid theory, and of the mythological theory, as well as our own psychological theory, must base their arguments we consider it very adequate evidence. Nearly every witness is a Celt who has been made acquainted with the belief in fairies through direct contact with people who believe in them or through having heard fairy traditions among his own kindred or through personal psychological experiences. Okay, so that's – I wanted to read that because yeah. that's his own explanation of where he's – how his information has gotten. Okay. We are now prepared to hear about the Dwan Maith, the good people, as the Irish call their she race. Now, she is interesting. It's spelled S-I-D-H-E, but it's pronounced she. Okay. <laughs> so when you hear of places like Glen She in Ireland, it's, mm. it's spelled S-H-E-E now, but Glen She means the Glen of the Fae. Uh. Okay. All right. As the Irish call their she race about the people of peace, the still folk or the silent moving folk, as the Scotch call their she, who live in green knolls and in mountain fastnesses of the highlands, about various Manx fairies, about the, wow, I don't even know, the, the, the Tilwith Teg, the fair family or fair folk, as the Welsh people call their fairies, about Cornish pixies, about the fee or fae, the corrigans, the phantoms of the dead in Brittany. And along with these, for they are very much akin, let us hear about ghosts, sometimes about ghosts who discover hidden treasure, as in our story of the golden image, about goblins, about various sorts of death warnings generally uh, coming from apparitions of the dead, or from banshees, about death candles and phantom funerals, about leprechauns and about hosts of the air, and about all kinds of elementals and spirits. In short, about all the orders of beings who mingle together in that invisible realm called fairyland. Okay. And the other thing you have to remember is, like, get, your, get the image of Tinkerbell out of your mind. Like, if, if a tink, Tinkerbell would be loosely called a pixie, but even pixies, pixies were usually really evil in these stories. So Tinkerbell mm -hmm. is some kind of weird Disney-ish version of a, like a, of a pixie, but, the, but the, often the fairy were enormous. And, like, beautiful, enormous, like, like the men were well-muscled and just, like, gigantic, eight feet tall and shining with light. 
and covered in Celtic tattoos and looking like they would cut your head off with a broadsword. Like they're yeah. not like little buzzing flies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The problem we have to deal with is a startling one. And thus put before us by Mr. Wentz. Mr. Wentz is the guy who wrote the book. Are these beings of the spirit world real beings having a veritable existence of their own in a world of their own? Or are they only the creation of the imagination of his, of his informants and the, and the tradition of bygone centuries? The newspaper, the National School, and the Zeitgeist have answered to their own entire satisfaction that these things are imagination pure and simple. Yet this offhand condemnation does not always carry with it a perfect conviction. We do not doubt the existence of tree martins or kingfishers, although 999 people out of every thousand pass their entire lives without being vouchsafed a glimpse of them in their live state. And it may not be the same with the creatures of the spirit world, or I'm sorry, and may it not be the same with the creatures of the spirit world. May not they also exist, although to only one in a thousand to behold them. The spirit creatures cannot be stuffed and put into museums like rare animals and birds, whose existence we might doubt if we had not seen them there. Yet they may exist just as animals and birds do, though we cannot see them. I, at least, have often been tempted to think so. <clears throat> so if you can see that, despite the archaic way of talking, basically what he's saying is, is we can't stuff these and put them in museums. But only one person out of a thousand is ever going to see a bobcat or a mountain lion. And yet no one doubts that they exist because we can stuff them and put them in museums. Yeah. But if we couldn't, how many people would completely disbelieve that those things exist? We already know about cryptids, animals that no one has managed to stuff and put in a museum yet, <laughs> and yet we find them every year, right? <laughs> so just because not everyone gets to see them does not mean they don't exist, right? But if Abs you, it, evidence, Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yeah. If you really want to see one, burn a bush and... <laughs> <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> Burn bush. Yeah, these are these are not those kind of fairies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's here's one of the first stories. It's called Death Through Cutting Fairy Bushes. And you can actually find what you can find information about this today in, in YouTube videos. There's like whole videos where people have there's entire like problems where people are like, do not put the highway through this area because that rock or that bush or that tree is where the faith folk live. And if you cut it down or you move that boulder, we're all gonna suffer. It's fascinating. So anyway, death through cutting fairy bushes. A man named Caffney cut as fuel to boil his pot of potatoes some of these <laughs> undisturbed bushes around which the fairies pass. When he put the wood under the pot, though it spat fire and fire sparkles would come out of it, it would not burn. The man pined away gradually. In six months after cutting the fairy bushes, he was dead. Just before he died, he told his experiences with the wood to his brother, and his brother told me. Right? So this is, this is the nature of a lot of the stories. Yeah. Okay. Next one, how the shoemaker's daughter became the queen of Tara. In olden times, there lived a shoemaker and his wife up near Moat Noaf, and their first child was taken by the queen of the fairies who lived inside the moat, and a little leprechaun left in its place. This is called a changeling, where if a baby is not properly protected, the fae will come and take it and leave one of their, like, child children in its place, or one of their old men, actually. Okay. Oh. Uh, that's... Should have turned that down. Yeah. Rookie move. <laughs> Hate to see it happen. <clears throat> okay. The same exchange was made when the second child was born. At the birth of the third child, the fairy queen came again and ordered one of her three servants to take the child. But the child could not be moved because a great beam of iron, too heavy to lift, which lay across the baby's breast. 
The second servant and then the third failed like the first, and the queen herself could not move the child. The mother, being short of pins, had used a needle to fasten the child's clothes, and that was what appeared to the fairies as a beam of iron, for there was virtue in steel in those days. So hmm. there's this weird thing with iron. Yeah. Okay. So the fairy queen decided to bestow gifts upon the child and advised each of the three servants to give, in turn, a different gift. The first one said, may she be the grandest lady in the world. The second one said, may she be the greatest singer in the world. And the third one said, may she be the best mantle maker in the world or, or weaver. Okay. Hmm. Then the fairy queen said, your gifts are all very good. But I will give a gift of my own better than any of them. The first time she happens to go out of the house, let her come back to it, back, back into it under the form of a rat. <laughs> like, what kind of gift is that? The mother heard all that the fairy woman said, and so she never permitted her daughter to leave the house. When the girl reached the age of 18, it happened that the young prince of Tara, in riding by on a hunt, heard her singing. And so entranced was he with the music that he stopped to listen. And the song ended, he entered the house and upon seeing the wonderful beauty of the singer, asked her to marry him. The mother said that could not be. And taking the daughter out of the house for the first time, brought her back into it in an apron under the form of a rat that the prince might understand the refusal. This enchantment, however, did not change the prince's love for the beautiful singer, and he explained how there was a day mentioned with his father, the king, for all the great ladies of Ireland to assemble in the hills of Tara, and that the grandest lady and the greatest singer with the best mantle maker would be chosen as his wife. When he added that each lady must come in a chariot, the rat spoke to him and said that he must send her home on the day named Four Cats and a Pack of Cards. You see where this is going? This is very Cinderella. Okay, four cats and a pack of cards, and that she would make her appearance, provided that at the time her chariot came to the halls of Tara, no one save the prince should be allowed near it. And she finally said to the prince, until the day mentioned with your father, you must carry me as a rat in your pocket. But before the great day arrived, the rat had made everything known to one of the fairy women. And so when the four cats and the pack of cards reached the girl's house... The fairies at once turned the cats into the four most splendid horses in the world, and the pack of cards into the most wonderful chariot in the world. And as the chariot was setting out from the moat for Tara, the fairy queen clapped her hands and laughed, and the enchantment over the girl was broken, so that she became, as before, the prettiest lady in the world, and sitting in the chariot. When the prince saw the wonderful chariot coming, he knew whose it was, and went out alone to meet it, but he could not believe his eyes upon seeing the lady inside, and then she told him about the witches and fairies and explained everything. Hundreds of ladies had come to the halls of Tara from all Ireland, and every one as grand as could be. The contest began with the singing and ended with the mantle-making, and the young girl was the last to appear. But to the amazement of all the company, the king had to give in and admit that the strange woman was the grandest lady, the greatest singer, and the best mantle-maker in Ireland. And when the old king died, she became queen of Tara. That is really strange. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so lots of elements of that. We'll become more familiar as we go through these stories. Uh, that's probably the longest one I'm going to read. <clears throat> okay. Crossing a stream and fairies. When out on a dark night, if pursued by fairies or ghosts, one is considered quite safe if one can get over some stream of water. I remember coming home on a dark night with a boy companion and hearing a noise, and then after we had run to a stream and crossed it, feeling quite safe. This is awesome. Another thing that's... This is interesting to me because of, of the other things it connects with, like demons crossing water. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about this that if you can cross water, then they can't get to you. Okay. <clears throat> Those who return from the Fae. Persons in a short trance state of two or three days duration are said to be away with the fairies enjoying a festival. The festival may be very material in its nature, or it may be purely spiritual. Sometimes one may thus go to fairy for an hour or two, or one may remain there for seven or 14 or 21 years. 
the mind of a person coming out of Fairyland is usually a blank as to what has been seen and done there. Another idea is that the person knows well enough all about Fairyland, but is prevented from communicating this knowledge. A certain woman of whom I knew said she had forgotten all about her experiences in Fairy, but a friend of her... Who her, a friend of hers who heard her objected and said she did remember but wouldn't tell. A man, a man may rema, uh, remain awake at night to watch one who has been to Fairyland to see if that one holds communications with the fairies. And others say that in such a case, the fairies know you are on the alert and will not be discovered. Hmm. <laughs> and so keep in mind, these are just what I'm reading are what people are telling this guy. Yeah. Every single one of these is a different person telling different stories that they've come across. Okay. In the South Island... As night was coming on, a man was giving his cow water at a well, and as he looked on the other side of a wall, he saw many strange people playing hurley. When they noticed him looking at them, one came up and struck the cow a hard blow, and turning on the man, cut his face and body very badly. The man might not have been so badly off, but he returned to the well after the first encounter and got five times as bad of a beating. And when he reached home, he couldn't speak at all until the cock crowed. Then he told about his adventures and slept a little. And when he woke up in the daylight, he was none the worse for his beating, for the fairies had rubbed something on his face. And the, the person, it says that they knew the man who is, if he is still alive, is now in America where he went several years ago. So that would have been back in the 1900s. Hmm. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm like, as you're, as you're hearing these stories, think of like the 411 stuff and just various other like strange things that happen to people in the woods, basically is what yeah. I'm getting, getting at here. Okay. This is this is weird. The famine of 1846 to 1847 is blamed was blamed on the fairies. The potato famine that killed all these people and sent a whole bunch of stuff of people to to the United States. During 1846, the potato crop in Ireland was a failure and very much suffering resulted. At the time, the country people in these parts attributed the famine to disturbed conditions in the fairy world. Old Fatty Steed told me about the conditions then prevailing and said, sure, we couldn't be any other way. And I saw the good people and hundreds besides me saw them fighting in the sky over Nakma and on towards Galway. And I heard others say that they saw the fighting also. So they, these people are claiming that they saw war in the sky and they blamed this on the famine. Yeah. <laughs> they blamed the war in the sky on the famine. Or I'm sorry, they blame the famine on the war in the sky, that the, that, the, that the conditions in fairyland caused the potato famine, that the, that the fairies were having this gigantic war, oh, and for okay. some reason that caused the famine. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> All right. I thought they had a potato famine and, the, and the, the fairies got mad and they had a massive war because oh, they, yeah, had no the <laughs> <laughs> they had no potatoes. They had no potatoes. It was the other way around. Okay. They blamed the, the potato famine on the fact that in fairyland there was this huge uproar of wars or whatever. Okay. The Ben Bulban uh, country in County Sligo is one of the rare places in Ireland where fairies are thought to be visible. And our first witness from there claims to be able to see the fairies or gentry. This is, they call them the gentry and to talk with them. This mortal so favored lives in the same townland where his fathers have lived during 400 years, directly beneath the shadows of Ben Bulban on whose sides Dermot is said to have been killed while hunting the wild boar. In this famous old mountain, honeycombed with curious grottoes ages ago when the sea beat against its perpendicular flanks, is the very place where the gentry have their chief abode. Even on its broad level summit, for it is a high square tableland like a mighty cube of rock set down upon the earth by some antediluvian god, there are treacherous holes wherein more than one hunter may have been lost forever, penetrating to unknown depths. And by listening, one can hear the tides from the ocean three or four miles away surging in and out through ancient subterranean channels connected with these holes. 
In the neighboring mountains, there are long caverns which no man has dared to penetrate to the end, and even dogs, it is said, have been put in them never to emerge or else to come out miles away. I just wanted to read that part about the caves. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, you can, like, listen at these holes and hear the ocean surging in and out of it, like, even though it's miles and miles and miles off. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Okay. Encounters with the gentry. When I was a young man, I often used to go out into the mountains over there, and he pointed out of a window in the direction, to fish for trout or to hunt. And it was in January on a cold and dry day while carrying my gun that I and a friend with me as we were walking around Ben Bulbin saw one of the gentry for the first time. I knew who it was, for I had heard the gentry described ever since I could remember, and this one was dressed in blue with a headdress adorned with what seemed to be frills. And when he came up to us, he said to me in a sweet and silvery voice, The seldomer you come to this mountain, the better. A young lady here wants to take you away. Then he told us not to fire off our guns because the gentry dislike being disturbed by the noise. And he seemed to be like a soldier of the gentry on guard. As we were leaving the mountains, he told us not to look back, and we didn't. Another time I was uh, alone trout fishing in nearly the same region when I heard a voice say, It is barefooted and fishing. Then there came a whistle-like music and a noise of the beating of a drum, and soon one of the gentry came and talked to me for half an hour. He said, Your mother will die in eleven months, and do not let her die unanointed. And she did die within eleven months. As he was going away, he warned me, You must be in the house before sunset. Do not delay. Do not delay. They can do nothing to you until I get back in the castle. As I found out afterwards, he was going to take me, but hesitated because he did not want to leave my mother alone. After these warnings, I was always afraid to go to the mountains, but lately I have been told I could go if I took a friend with me. (laughs) That's so strange. Isn't that strange? (laughs) Okay, the gentry described. So he says, in response to my wish, this description of the gentry was given. The folk are the grandest I have ever seen. They are far superior to to us, and that is why they they are called the gentry. They are not a working class, but a military aristocratic class, tall and noble appearing. They are a distinct race between our own and that of spirits, as they have told me. Their qualifications are tremendous. Quote, we could cut off half the human race, but not, but we would not, for we are expecting salvation. And I knew a man three or four years ago whom they struck down with paralysis. Their sight is so penetrating that I think they can see through the earth. They have a silvery voice, quick and sweet. The music they play is most beautiful. They take the whole body and soul of young and intellectual people who are interesting, transmuting the body to a body like their own. I asked them once if they ever died, and they said, no, we are always kept young. Once they take you and you taste food in their palace, you cannot come back. You are changed into one of them and live with them forever. They are able to appear in different forms. One once appeared to me and seemed only four feet high and stoutly built. He said, I am bigger than I appear to you now. We can make the old young, the big small, and the small big. One of their women told all the secrets of my family. She said that my brother in Australia would travel much and suffer hardships, all of which came true, and foretold that my nephew, then about two years old, would become a great clergyman in America, and that is what he is now. Besides the gentry, who are a distinct class, there are bad spirits and ghosts, which are nothing like them. My mother once saw a leprechaun in beside a bush. He disappeared before she could get to him, but he also was unlike one of the gentry. Hmm. (laughs) Is this interesting to you at all? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. The Invisible Island. Okay. There is an enchanted island which is invisible between Inishmuray and the mainland opposite. It is only seen once in seven years. I saw it myself. So did four or five others with me. 
A boatman from Sligo named Carr took two strange men with him towards Inishmoray, and they disappeared at the spot where the island is, and he thought they had fallen overboard and been drowned. Carr saw one of the same men in Connolly some six months or so after, and with great surprise he said to him, "'Will you tell me the wonders of the world? Is it you I saw drowned near Inishmoray?' "'Yes,' he said, and then he asked, "'Do you see me?' "'Yes,' answered Carr. "'But,' said the man again, "'do you not see me with both eyes?' Then Carr closed one eye to be sure and found that he saw him with one eye only. As he told the man which one it was, at this information, the ferryman blew on Carr's face and Carr never saw him again. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I'm just reminded of all these weird superstitions. That, yeah. Like Ty was asking us to look up superstitions and I read a whole bunch of them and like a lot of these things that they yeah. say – Remind me of those. Yeah, little, there's a lot of stuff mixed in. You know? yeah, yeah. Don't do this. Don't do that. Yeah. Do this when this happens. Do that when this happens. <laughs> right. It's all like yeah. <laughs> the rule book of the fey folk. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so this is an interesting one. A druid enchantment. There follow the most weird legend I have ever heard in Celtic lands about druids and magic. One afternoon, Patrick Waters pointed out to me the field near the seacoast opposite Inishmaray in which the ancient minhir containing the enchantment used to stand. And at another time, he said that a bronze wand covered with curious marks or interlaced designs was found not far from the ruined dolmen uh, on the farm of Patrick Bruon about two miles southward. This last statement, like the story itself, I have been unable to verify in any way. So here's the story. In times before Christ, there were druids here who enchanted one another with druid rods made of brass and metamorphosed one another into stone and lumps of oak. The question is, where are the spirits of these druids now? Their spirits are wafted through the air, and the man or beast they meet is smitten, while their own bodies are still under enchantment. I had such a druid enchantment in my hand. It wasn't stone, nor marble, nor flint, and it had a human shape. It was found in the center of a big rock, and, and round this rock, light used to appear at night. The man who owned the stone decided to blast it, and he found at its center the enchantment, just like a man with head and legs and arms. Father Healy took the enchantment away while he was here on visit and said that it was a druid enchanted and that to get out of the rock was one part of the releasement and that there would be a second and complete releasement of the druid. Isn't that That's weird? crazy, dude. <laughs> yeah. That there was this giant standing stone and the dude it used to glow at night yeah. and the dude blasted it open and found this like weird not figurine. stone, not, yeah, figurine encased in it and that it, and the... The priest claimed that it was the druid himself that was enchanted. And he in there. knew how to make him. Yeah, took him and hid him, him away yet. so that he wouldn't become alive again. <clears throat> oh, really? They're pagan. Yeah, according to the, you know the priest, this uh, this church guy. Okay, the fairy tribes classified. Finally, I asked Patrick to classify as far as he could all the fairy tribes he had ever heard about, and he said, "The leprechaun is a red-capped fellow who stays around pure springs, generally shoemaking for the rest of the fairy tribes." The Lunatishis are the tribes that guard the blackthorn trees or sloes, and they let you cut no stick on the 11th of November, which is the original November day, or the 11th of May, which is the original May day. If at such a time you cut a blackthorn, some misfortune will come to you. Pukas are black-featured fellows mounted on good horses and are horse dealers. They visit race courses but are usually invisible. The gentry are the most noble tribe of all, and they are a big race who come from the planets. According to my idea, they usually appear white or shining light. The Dwan Maith, though there is some doubt, the same or almost the same as the gentry, were next to heaven at the fall, but did not fall. They are a people expecting salvation. Hmm. So, okay, uh, okay, go ahead. The 11th, 
I'm wondering about procession, like you're saying the 11th is was used to be the original day. Yeah, the original May Day. Is that the way it would go? Like forward, like. What do you mean? Like in terms of procession, because the, the, if if you follow the seasons, as your as your calendar. Yeah. And then, after many 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 years pass, oh due yeah, to procession, you mean with the day with the day drift. Yes. Yeah, I think the, it would. Yeah. Does it go forward or backwards? It would go backwards along the calendar, right? That's what I thought. Yeah. So, that's what's weird. May Day now? <laughs> well, I, I mean, he's saying that the eleventh used to be that day, right? With the first of May. It's the eleventh, and now it's the first. Is I think is the idea. I don't know when May Day is supposed to be. Is it the fifth? I don't know. But it seems to have gone backwards. It's not. It's not farther forward in the calendar. Yeah, it's hard for me to picture it. <laughs> it's like it's the same problem with. Uh, you know, changing the hour forward or back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> does the does the pointer, the graphic, does the pointer drift backwards along the calendar from the eleventh yeah. of May to the tenth to the ninth to the eighth to the seventh to the sixth? Yeah, because we get like we have we have these things like mayflies and June bugs. Yeah, but they come a month out of place. Yeah, yeah, because probably due to procession. Right, right. <laughs> they're no longer in June or in May. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. All right, we're going to take another quick break. And uh, when we come back, I will continue to read these very strange stories about the fairy faith. be to Aya. Having more fun than Inlil allows human beings to have. This is Brothers and Syrup Podcast for the second time for the third segment. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a time warp for you guys because you don't know, except that I'm telling you now, that we actually did this segment once already and we lost it. Probably because I was talking shit about fairies. <laughs> and they got mad. So I'm now mad. <laughs> <laughs> we were literally halfway through the segment and the computer just shut off. Yeah, so I must have said something wrong and made them <laughs> mad. Okay, <clears throat> so a midwife story. This this story is uh, this. There's a lot of stories like this about midwives who have these strange encounters. They're asked to come and and help a fairy baby be born. Okay, so a midwife story. A country nurse was requested by a strange man on horseback to go with him to exercise her profession, and she went with him to a castle she did not know. When the baby was born, every woman in the place where the event happened put her finger into a basin of water and rubbed her eyes. So the nurse put her finger in and rubbed it on one of her eyes. She went home and thought no more about it. But one day she was at the fair and she saw some of the same women who were in the castle when the baby was born. Though, as she noticed, she could only see them with the one eye that she had wet with the water from the basin. The nurse spoke to the women, and they wanted to know how she recognized them. And she, in reply, said it was with the one eye. And she asked, how is the baby? The baby is well, said one of the fairy women. And what eye do you see us with? Uh, with the left eye, answered the nurse. And then the fairy woman blew her breath against the nurse's left eye and said, you'll never see us again. And the nurse was always blind in her left eye after that. 
That is just that is a crazy, yeah. cool story. <laughs> what is the deal with blowing in the eye? Yeah, I don't know. Let us now turn to the Ross's Point country, which, as we have already said, is one of the very famous places for seeing the gentry, or as educated Irish seers who make pilgrimages thither call them, the she. I have been told by more than one such seer that there on the hills and greenlands, which is a great stretch of open country, treeless and grass-grown, and on the strand at Lower Ross's Point, called Wren Point by the country folk, these beings can be seen and their wonderful music heard. And a well-known Irish artist has shown me many drawings and paintings in oil of these she people, as he has often beheld them at those places and elsewhere in Ireland. They are described as a race of majestic appearance and marvelous beauty, in form human yet in nature divine. The highest order of them seems to be a race of beings evolved to a superhuman plane of existence, such as the ancients called gods, lowercase g-god there. <clears throat> and with this opinion, strange as it may seem in this age, all of the educated Irish seers with whom I have pri been privileged to talk agree, though they go further, and say that these highest she races still inhabiting Ireland are the ever-young, immortal divine race known to the ancient men of Erin as the Tuatha de Danann. Which is the... The, the, they were, the Tuatha de Danann, if I'm saying that correctly, is the supposedly almost divine superhuman race that when men came to the island of Ireland, they defeated them in this great war. And the Tuatha were, like in the terms of surrender, the Tuatha had to go below ground and men would live above ground. Hmm. So that was the, they've kind of, I don't know if those, Things are connected if the fairies are connected to them or not, but they often will ascribe them to being those those people. That they're I, it's it's weird to me because I'm like, wait a minute, how did if they're immortal and badass, how did the men defeat them and force them underground? Well, there are ways. Like there are ways. There are ways. <laughs> no, but like there, you know, and I, I'm thinking of like sort of like fairy tales. There are these. There's always like these weird ways you can trick. The yeah. powerful being or whatever, because they're they're they've got other issues like with, yeah. with things that are they sort have of Achilles normal. Heels is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. They got things that are like normal to humans are like really difficult or not. Yeah, like their problems with the iron for one. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And there's just I don't know. I can't think of any examples, but there's like interesting ways to trick them because they're not good at certain things that humans are or, or right. something like that. Yeah. So maybe they were. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That, uh, I do know that the, their whole problem with uh, they hate iron. Like the story of the fairy queen that could not steal the baby because it had the pit, the little tiny steel pin on it, but they saw it as a giant beam across its yeah. chest, and so they couldn't lift it. Yeah. They have a serious problem with iron. And they call it cold iron. Bring no item of cold iron when you come to meet the fae. Yeah. Right? And that was, that's the other thing, like, like making deals with them. You can often trick them, like, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. the way, like, you trick the demon into making the deal, you know, yeah. for the pick of destiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we challenge you to a rock off. <laughs> You're going to gargle mayonnaise. <laughs> the demon code prevents me from denying a rock off challenge. <laughs> <laughs> the demon code. <laughs> okay. So there's this whole question and answer series here, and I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of these. <clears throat> okay. Question. By the inner world, do you mean the Celtic other world? Answer. Yes. So there are many other worlds. The Tirnanog of the ancient Irish, in which the races of the she exist, may be described as a radiant archetype of this world, 
though this definition does not at all express its psychic nature. In Tirnanog, one sees nothing save harmony and beautiful forms. There are other worlds in which we can see horrible shapes. So, the the whole Celtic other world, the the warp and the woof, the idea of how they're interwoven together, yeah. is what he's talking about here. But he's saying that there are many uh, warp and woof weaves in this, all stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so let's see. What, there's some other questions here. Okay. Do you in any way classify the she races to which you can refer? Answer. The beings whom I call the she, I divide, as I have seen them, into two great classes, those which are shining and those which are opalescent and seem lit up by a light within themselves. The shining beings appear to be lower in the hierarchies, and the opalescent beings are more rarely seen and appear to hold the positions of great chiefs or princes among the tribes of Dana. Under what state and condition and where have you seen such beings? Answer. I have seen them most frequently after being away from a city or town for a few days. The whole west coast of Ireland from Donegal to Kerry seems charged with a magical power, and I find it easiest to see while I am there. I have always found it comparatively easy to see visions while at ancient monuments like Newgrange, because I think such places are naturally charged with psychical forces, and were for that reason made use of long ago as sacred places. I usually find it possible to throw myself into the mood of seeing, but sometimes visions have forced themselves upon me. Okay. Hmm. Uh, then he gives a description of the shining beings that they are, uh, let's see, the opalescent beings, that they are dazzling in light, that they have this, that they're half transparent. Uh, throughout the body ran a radiant electrical fire to which the heart seemed the center around the head of this being and through its waving luminous hair, which was blown about the body like living strands of gold. There appeared flaming wing-like auras. From the being itself, light seemed to stream outwards in every direction, and the effect left on me after the vision was one of extraordinary lightness, joyousness, and ecstasy. <clears throat> and like we were talking about the last time we recorded this, this segment, <laughs> that that's very much like what Enoch or Ezekiel or these other ancient prophets have yeah. said about angels, right? Except <clears throat> that, that, I don't know, Enoch's description of like when he goes – with the angels, like they're they're like the shining ones. They sort of yeah. are just bright, or they glow, or or something. Right. But then they, he brings them. They bring him to the Most High. Or right, and that whatever. one's too he's, bright. To he's even look so at. bright he can't even look at it. But it's also he's like scared to death. He doesn't have a feeling of lightness and joy. Right. So it's a, right. Uh, That's true. Maybe this person is worried about offending them like you were yeah. saying in the oh, last it was time great it was i felt joyous and <laughs> ecstasy <laughs> really he's going <laughs> see this is why the computer shut off last time we got we can't offend these beings okay <laughs> i know i was getting upset because i skipped my opportunity to do the same joke i did before about the oh. the, the beings in the dark places that is <laughs> yeah. all types of horrible things <laughs> Last time we did this segment, I was like, that reminds me of some of the places Stephen King talks about, like in the Dark Tower series, where you're just like, Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Question. You speak of the opalescent beings as great beings. What stature do you assign to them and to the shining beings? Answer. The opalescent beings seem to be about 14 feet in stature, though I do not know why I attribute to them such a definite height. Since I had nothing to compare them with, but I have always considered them as much taller than our race. The shining beings seem to be about our own stature or just a little taller. 
peasant and other Irish seers do not usually speak of the she as being little, but as being tall. An old schoolmaster in the west of Ireland described them to me from his own visions as tall, beautiful people, and he used some Gaelic words, which I took as meaning that they were shining with every color. Okay. Question. Do the orders, the two orders of she beings inhabit the same world? Answer. The shining beings belong to the mid-world, while the opalescent beings belong to the heaven world. There are three great worlds which we can see while we are still in this body. The earth, the mid-world, and the heaven world. Hmm. Okay. Mid-world. Mid-world. That's <laughs> also in Stephen King. That's right. <laughs> Dark Tower. <laughs> A stone wall overthrown by a fairy agency. Nothing is more certain than that there are fairies. The old folks always thought them as the thought of them as the fallen angels. At the back of this house, the fairies had their pass or road. My neighbor started to build a cowshed, and one wall abutting on the pass was thrown down twice, and nothing but the fairies ever did it. The third time the wall was built, it stayed up. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see that the whole three times built thing is comes from the fairy lore as well. Yep. Monty Python's genius. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Personal opinions. Okay. The fairies of any one race are the people of the preceding race. So the Formors for the Fearbolgs, the Fearbolgs for the Danans, and the Danans for us. So if you take that backwards, like the human race sees the Tuatha Dé Danann as the Fae. The Tuatha Dé Danann saw the Fearbolgs, which they defeated as the Fae. The fear bulgs saw the formors, which they defeated as the fey, or hmm. those in the spirit realm, the ones banished to the midworld. I wonder if that's like sort of connected to the uh, what's the Indian the it's, ah, dang it, can't <laughs> think of the word. We talk about it all the time. The what? the yuga cycles. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Like they're they're the uh, like you got the you got the golden age of these enlightened ascended oh, yeah. beings, and then these come and defeat quote unquote defeat them. So the Tuatha Dé Danann would have been from the previous Silver Age, and the humans from the Kali defeated them. Yeah, yeah, that but makes sense. Defeated That's, them. It's not. It's not like they actually had a war. It was like this was the the fall, the natural movement of of yeah, the fall of the the consciousness of the beings of the time. Yeah. And so the older, like the higher ascended, like you were saying, ascended beings were from the higher. Yeah, I got you. That's interesting. And, and so that their their consciousnesses or their spirits are still there in the world, but they, they won't come back into power, quote unquote, until that cycle yeah. repeats. That's very interesting, especially the way that. OK, yeah. Because cool. like that's why we have the, we're in the Iron Age or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we've got this cold you, iron. Yeah. Yeah. They don't like cold iron. That's right. Wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> Good thing we did this segment again. That's right. <laughs> Please don't hurt us, fairies. <laughs> the death coach. Now maybe they they wanted us to figure it out, which is why they killed the computer. Oh yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Just make sure you don't go. If, if you wake up tomorrow and you're blind in your left eye, you know. <laughs> I'm throwing sugar over my left shoulder right now. <laughs> the next tale the mother told was about the death coach, which used to pass by the very house we were in. Every night until after her daughter was born, she used to rise up on her elbow in bed to listen to the death coach passing by. Now, see, I, they call it the death coach, but it's it's really when you when you get through the story, you realize it's like a spirit coach. Really, it's not necessarily a death coach. Yeah. There's, there was no death associated with it, except that they associate it with the underworld. Right. Yeah. 
It passed by about midnight, and she could hear the rushing, the trampling of the horses, and the most beautiful singing, just like fairy music, but she could not understand the words. Once or twice, she was brave enough to open the door and look out as the coach passed, but she could never see a thing, though there was the noise and the singing. One time, a man had to wait on the roadside to let the horses go by, and he could hear their passing very clearly, but he couldn't see a one of them. Okay, and then, he's, and then the, the author says, When we got home, Dr. Hyde, who was the guy he was going around with, told me that the fairies of the region are rarely seen. The people usually say that they hear or feel, the, uh, feel them only. Okay, the good people and Mr. Gillaran. After the mother had testified, the daughter, who was quite of the younger generation, gave her own opinion. She said that the good people live in the forts, and by this they mean, but when they say forts, he's also he's italicizing that. He what he means is these Bronze Age, what what standard model archaeologists consider to be Bronze Age forts that are all yeah. over Ireland. Okay, they often take the men and women or youths who pass by the forts after sunset, and take again is italicized, meaning that they're these people vanish. So if you're yeah. walking. After sunset, past one of these ancient Bronze Age forts, the fairy take you, and you just you you four one one. Okay, Mister Gilleran, who died not long ago, once saw certain dead friends and recognized among them those who were believed to have been taken, and those who died naturally, and that he saw them again when he was on his deathbed. So he so he saw both people who had disappeared while out in the fields. And people who died naturally together with the fairy in the fields near the forts is what the, is what that hmm. story is saying. So this is why they associate with death and the underworld with the that. underworld in yeah. some way or another. Yeah. So we have here, as in so many other accounts, a clear connection between the realm of the dead and the fairyland. <clears throat> okay, a girl recovered from fairy one day. Just before sunset in midsummer, I and a boy then, my brother and cousin and myself, were gathering bilberries up by the rocks at the back of here when all at once we heard music. So here you have people picking berries in the middle of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> About to 411. That's right. <laughs> We heard music. We hurried round the rocks, and there we were within a few hundred feet of six or eight of the gentle folk. And they danced. And when they saw us, a little woman, dressed all in red, came running out of them towards us. And she struck my cousin across the face with what seemed to be a green rush. We ran for home as hard as we could. And when my cousin reached the house, she fell dead. Father saddled a horse and went for Father Ryan. So their dad went for the priest. When Father Ryan arrived, he put a stole about his neck and began praying over my cousin and reading psalms and striking her with the stole. And in that way, he brought her back. He said if she had not caught hold of my brother, she would have been taken forever. That she would have disappeared yeah. completely. It's weird. Like the there's the other story where they see him and the person runs up and like slashes his face or her right. face, whichever. Yeah, exactly. And then there are all those 411 stories where people appear with slashes all down their bodies. Oh, you know, they find the person and they've got these incredible, what they call uh, uh, abrasions all down their bodies or whatever. Like, yeah. this is the same deal. If anybody ever asks you, like, hey, you want to go pick berries in the boulder field? You're like, hell to the no. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hell no. <laughs> the gentle folk. The gentle folk are not earthly people. They are a people with a nature of their own. Even in the water, there are men and women of the same character. Others have caves in the rocks. 
And in them, they have their own rooms and apartments. These races were terribly plentiful 100 years ago, which would be the 1800s. And they'll come back again. My father lived two miles from here, where there were plenty of the gentle folk. In olden times, they used to take young folks and keep them and draw all of the life out of their bodies. Nobody could ever tell their nature exactly. So, again, like the reason they call them the gentle folk or the gentry... Right. These names are because they don't want to offend them. Like to offend the fairy is usually either deadly or brings incredible misfortune. So they call them the good folk or the gentle folk, even though often they're not any of those things. Are you one of the nasty folk? (laughs) (laughs) Dead. (laughs) That's right. He did. (laughs) The fairies and the weaver. Ned Judge of Sophist Bridge was a weaver. Every night after he went to bed, the weaving started of itself, and when he arose in the morning, he would find the dressing which had been made ready for weaving so broken and entangled that it took him hours to put it right. Yet with all this drawback, he got no poorer because the fairies left him plenty of household necessaries, and whenever he sold a web of cloth, he always received uh, thrice the amount he bargained for. So they come in and completely screw everything up. But they gave him a bunch of household stuff that he didn't have to purchase. And then whenever he got to sell his thing after he finally was able to make it, even though they were screwing it up, he got three times the amount he was going to try to pay for it. They're like spirit weaving something in it. In the in yeah, our realm, it totally destroys yeah, it. But in their realm, they're like making their badass that's robes right. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's crazy. Food offerings to place fairies. It was very usual formerly, and the practice is not yet completely given up. To place a bed, some other furniture, and plenty of food in a newly constructed dwelling the night before the time fixed for moving into it. And if the food is not consumed and the crumbs swept up by the door in the morning, the house cannot be safely occupied. I know of two houses now that have never been occupied because the fairies did not show their willingness and goodwill by taking food so offered to them. Yeah, that's crazy. So yeah, imagine that. You build your whole house... And the night before you move, or the day before you move in, the night before you move in, you put in some furniture and you set out a bunch of food. And if the fairies did not take the food, that you cannot live in the house. Yeah, that can only be a custom from a people that are not really just making crap up. Like, right? Why would you leave the house? That's a big deal. Yeah, to leave a house that you built. That's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> but it also reminds me of. The, the whole Santa Claus thing that we have here, which is a pagan. Yeah. P- p- many pieces of it come from the Fey legends. Yeah. yeah. So you got to put out the cookies, milk, and then right. he comes down there and, and like, then he leaves you gifts or and whatever. And he is magically able to travel through the sky and yeah. come down every chimney and leave gifts. Yeah. And then only if you're good or bad. Right. He knows who's naughty or nice. Yeah. Yeah. And leave him some food. Okay. Evidence from Loch Gur, County Limerick. One of the most interesting parts of Ireland for the archaeologist and for the folklorist alike is the territory immediately sounding Loch Gur, County Limerick, shut in for the most part from the outer world by a circle of low-lying hills on whose summits fairy goddesses yet dwell invisibly. This region, famous for its numerous and well-preserved cromlechs, dolmens, minhirs, and tumuli, and tumuli are like piles of... Uh, they're usually like tells, mounds of stone that used to be... Something, but nobody can tell what they are now. And for the rare folk traditions among uh, current among its peasantry, has long been popularly regarded as a sort of otherworld preserve haunted by fairy beings who dwell both in its waters and on its land. There seems to be no reasonable doubt that in pre-Christian times, the Loch Gur count, uh, country was a very sacred spot for a mystic center of pilgrimages and for the celebration of Celtic religious rites, including those of initiation. The Loch is still enchanted, 
but once in seven years the spell passes off of it, and then it appears like dry land to anyone that is fortunate enough to behold this. At such a time of disenchantment, a tree, and that's with a capital T, a tree is seen growing up to the lake bottom, a tree like the strange world tree of Scandinavian myth. The tree is covered with a green cloth, and under it sits the lake's guardian, a woman who is knitting. The peasantry about Loch Gur still believe that beneath its waters there is one of the chief entrances in Ireland to Tir Nanog, the land of youth or the fairy realm. Hmm. That reminds me of the, uh, the little winemaking lady at, oh, yeah. at the edge of the, like on the other side of the mountain in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah. And she has a gate yeah. and a door. <laughs> yeah. And has to get in there to get information. Why do you like, close your gate against me, woman? <laughs> <laughs> Because you looked at oh, I looked out, my friend is dead. <laughs> <laughs> there are two hills near Loch Gur upon whose summits sacrifices and sacred rites used to be celebrated according to living tradition. One about three miles southwest of the lake is called Nock Ain or Aini. Ane or Ane being the name of an ancient Irish goddess derived from An, bright. Yep. Anu. Sumerian Anu. Inanna. <laughs> the other, the highest hill on the lake shores, is called Knock Fennel, or the Hill of the Goddess Fennel, from Finin or Finie or Finine, a form of Fin or F I N, uh, which means white. The peasantry of the region call Aine or Anu one of the good people, and they say that Fennel, apparently her sister goddess or a variant, live upon the top of the Knock. Knock Fennel. So that 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 one I I wanted to read, even though it's confusing with all the different name types and everything, because of the connection with Sumerian mythology yeah. and the ancient gods there, like Anu, Ane, Aine, Inanna, Fenel, Fen, yeah. Fien. <laughs> it's like less interesting to think that you know the Sumerians or that there was a say a lost civilization predates the Sumerians that circumnavigated the globe and spread their ideas around Yeah, than it is to think that there's that spirit realm and whatever all that weird stuff is that is independently, still yeah, yeah. It's still there and independently influence these different. Yes. I see what you're saying. People. Yeah. yeah. Like that there's a, co- the common, the, the common influence is actually from this spirit realm right. rather than some ancient lost civilization. Yeah. Or it could be both. It could be both. Yeah. You know, the ancient lost civilization could have the been. The Tuatha Dé Danann are supposedly an ancient lost civilization, a piece of one that were sent there. Like the, the, the whole legend of them we'll have to get into on some other show because that's a giant rabbit hole. But they were basically, what's up? Go ahead. They were basically sent there to the land of Ireland as a piece of a civilization that existed elsewhere in the world that was global in scope. They were sent there to conquer it of the fear Nanag or whatever the older people were. Yeah. The, the, it's almost like the Greek Titans being conquered by the later pantheon of, of you know, Zeus and his ilk. Yeah. Have you read the, the Finn word yet? Yeah, Finn, Finn, Finn. Yeah, as in Phoenician. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Before. Phoenicians. Yeah. And they, like, basically... They, they went all over the place, and they have all... And no one can figure out where the hell they were from. Yeah. No, yeah. We don't know where they were from or who they, you know, yeah. who they actually were, but we just have... That like, article that you read, that's their boat. It was one of their boats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The we have We have their written language. Yeah. And... Yeah. And there's, know, there's, just... there's standard model ideas that they came from Mycenae or, or whatever, but nobody really knows. Yeah. Nobody actually knows. It's just crazy that 
Well, I mean, I guess it's not that crazy if you're thinking of the idea that sea levels are totally different. Yeah. Like they could, wherever they were from could just be yeah. underwater. So Yeah. Anyway. Finn. <laughs> Finn. <laughs> Fine. It's a thing that I a know. fish has. Take hell, Mine. <laughs> <laughs> A collective vision of spiritual beings. Some few weeks before Christmas 1910 at midnight on a very dark night, I and another young man who, like myself, was then about 23 years of age, were on horseback on our way home from Limerick. While near Listowel, we had noticed a light about half a mile ahead. At first, it seemed to be no more than a light in some house, but as we came nearer to it, and it was passing out of our direct line of vision, we saw that it was moving up and down and to and fro, diminishing to a spark and then expanding into a yellow, luminous flame. Before we came to Listowel, we noticed two lights about 100 yards to our right, resembling the light seen at first. Suddenly, each of these lights expanded into the same sort of yellow luminous flame, about six feet high by four feet broad. In the midst of each flame, we saw a radiant being having human form. Presently, the lights moved towards one another and made contact, whereupon the two beings in them were seen to be walking side by side. The beings' bodies were formed of a pure, dazzling radiance, white like the radiance of the sun and much brighter than the yellow light or aura surrounding them. So dazzling was the radiance, like a halo around their heads, that we could not distinguish the countenance of the beings. We could only distinguish the general shape of their bodies, though their heads were very clearly outlined because of this halo-like radiance, which was the brightest light about them, seemed to radiate from or rest upon the head of each being. As we traveled on, a house intervened between us and the lights, and we saw no more of them. It was the first time we had ever seen such phenomena, and in our hurry to get home, we were not wise enough to stop and make further examination. But ever since that night, I have frequently seen, both in Ireland and in England, similar lights with spiritual beings in them. That's cool. Yeah. That has a lot of similarities to, you know, a lot of the, you know, Middle Eastern... Yeah, depictions of Depictions of, of, of seeing a being like... And even know. like... Native American rock art where you see the halo around the head. Yeah, of yeah. These be- and, and there's yeah, all these lines point. coming out from them like they're shining. Yeah. Okay. Now he's in Scotland. The proud angel. Okay, so this, this story I'm about to read uh, is found in every one of these Celtic countries. And it, it was, it was, it's told in every one of them about when they ask, well, how do you think – where do you think these beings came from? This story is similar in almost all aspects, except for little tiny details. The story that they tell about where they think these fairies came from, except for the whole Tuatha Dei Danan thing, but they think this, that's part of it. But anyway, here we go. The proud angel, there's a, that's in, those are capitalized. So in other words, we're talking about Lucifer here. Hmm. Fomented a rebellion amongst the angels of heaven where he had been leading, where he had been a leading light. He declared that he would go and found a kingdom of his own. For himself. When going out at the door of heaven, the proud angel brought prickly lightning and biting lightning out of the doorstep with his heels. <clears throat> many angels followed him. So many that at last the son, or you know, the son of God, called out, Father, the city is being emptied. Whereupon the father ordered that the gates of heaven and the gates of hell should be closed. This was instantly done. And those who were in were in. Those who were out were out. While the hosts who had left heaven and had not yet reached hell flew into the holes of the earth like the stormy petrels. These are the fairy folk ever since doomed to live under the ground. Mm. So, so you imagine this didn't make it. Into right. The, the stream of, of angels coming out following Lucifer, the 
the ones that were like when the gates were ordered shut, yeah. bam, they slammed shut. And there were ones that were in hell, ones that were in heaven, and the ones in between. And those are the Fae. Wow. So where are these other stories that were like you're saying there's a bunch of stories that are similar? Yeah, that story is told in every I'm just I've, we've just gotten to Scotland. He's moved from Ireland into Scotland. And I just marked that one as to stand for every because that you find it in every single one of the islands. Oh, OK, OK. That's all I was saying. OK, here's another part. On certain nights when their bowers are open and their lamps are lit and the song and the dance are moving merrily, the Fae may be heard singing lightheartedly. Not of the seed of Adam are we, nor is Abraham our father, but of the seed of the proud angel driven forth from heaven. Hmm. So they're not men, not of the seed of Adam. Yeah. <laughs> I find that fascinating. Sometimes the fairies helped human beings with their work, coming in at night to finish the spinning or the housework, or to thresh the farmer's corn or fan his grain. On such occasions, they must not be molested or interfered with, even in gratitude. If presented with a garment, they will go away and work no more. This method of getting rid of them is often resorted to as it is not always easy to find work for them to do. And you might recognize this from Harry Potter. Yeah, give them clothes. Give and the they... house elf clothes and they leave. Yeah. That's how you fire them, basically. But in this sense, it's more like there are lots of stories about, and, and even this comes from the Arabic legends, too. Like you get a demon uh, servant. And it does everything that you want, and it does it so quickly, And then, uh, but then it begins to get pissed, like, give me work to do. Give me work to do, right? And if you can't find work for them, they, they start to f screw everything up, and people become desperate to find something for them to do, and they always find these, like, endless tasks, right? Like counting the grains of sand on the beach or uh, just something that's impossible, trying to, like, uh, uncurl uncurl like curly hair or something like that they keep they pull it out and then it goes back in they pull it out and it goes back in they pull it out and you send them in this like revolving endless task in order to keep them from destroying everything because they don't Man. have anything to do build pyramids right uh. <laughs> and then they'll cover the whole world in pyramids and be like give me something to do because it only takes them a second to do it it's it's impossible to to satisfy their their need for work sometimes a man hearing the merry music and seeing the wonderful light Within would be tempted to go and join them, but woe to him if he omitted to leave a piece of iron at the door upon entering. For the cunning fairies would close the door and the man would find no egress. There he would dance for years, but to him the years were as one day, while his wife and family mourned him as dead. So this, this kind of connects to legends where if you're not careful, like the whole Rip Van Winkle deal, you go in and you dance with him for one night. And when you come back, everyone you knew is dead and it's yeah. been generations, right? But what was the part about the iron at the door? I was thinking about something Leave else. iron at the door so that you can get out because they can't close it. Oh. But if you don't leave iron at the door, they'll shut the door and then there will be no door in your eyes. You will not be able to find the exit. Hmm. The flint arrowheads so much prized by antiquarians are called in the highlands uh, uh, she fairy arrows. And I'm probably butchering that first word. I know how to say the second one, she. <laughs> they are said to have been thrown by the fairies at the sons and daughters of men. The writer possesses one which was thrown at his own maidservant one night when she went to the peat stack for peat. She was aware of something whizzing through the silent air, passing through her hair, grazing her ear and falling at her feet. Stooping in the bright moonlight, the girl picked up a fairy arrow. This reminds me of like... American Northwest, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest encounters with Bigfoot throwing rocks at people in the night. In the night, you hear knocking, mm. and then these rocks come whizzing by. You know, like yeah. is it Bigfoot or is it the Fae? Well, since we're comparing things to uh, modern 
<laughs> movies and stuff. <laughs> Game of Thrones, like the 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 children of the forest mm. in Game of Thrones made the the arrowheads or the spear points out oh, of yeah. out of the obsidian. Oh, okay. And they it like I guess the blood of the earth in the in the TV shows because I don't think the books have even gotten here yet. But they they make the thins the the others the the ones the beings that can raise the dead uh-huh. and that are fighting men they make them by they, there was a man one of the first men and they shoved the they did some dance or whatever something like that and then they shoved the the arrowhead of of uh, obsidian into the heart of the guy and he turns into one of the thins and they used him as a weapon to fight the humans. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because they were in a battle with the humans and the humans came and replaced them. So they yeah. became and they were in the story they become like fairies, like nobody believes in them anymore. Yeah. The children of the forest. There's a lot of stories like that too that like when the fae are having a war with men, they find one man to come or if they're having a war with each other, the side that can find one man to fight for them because he, he can disrupt the whole other force and the the one with one man fighting for them will always win. Mm. It's interesting. So yeah, they 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 turned him into a weapon and then that weapon ended up almost destroying them too because he was raising the dead. Oh yeah. And just wiping Causing chaos. Yeah. It's yeah. everywhere. Going in on on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Going in on. <laughs> All, right. All right, we're going to take a quick break, come back for the last segment about the fae, the good folk. The gentle ones. The nice people. Technical difficulties flawlessly with <laughs> zero mistakes. <clears throat> Brothers of the Serpent Podcast, audio engineer, doing that for us. Thank you, audio engineer. Thank you, audio engineer. <laughs> all, all the uh, technical difficulties that the Fae can throw at us. That's right. <laughs> flawlessly swatted away like... <laughs> like little tiny fairy arrows. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Don't turn me into a thin. <laughs> Aberfoyle, the country of Robert Kirk. My first hunt for fairies in Scotland began at Aberfoyle, and I'm probably butchering that name, where the highlands and lowlands meet. And in the very place where Robert Kirk, the minister of Aberfoyle, was taken by them in the year of 1692. The minister spent a large part of his time studying the ways of the good people. And he must have been able to see them, for he was a seventh son. Remember that mm. legend, the seventh son? If you were a seventh son, you were, like, assumed to be a seer, to have supernatural abilities. Mm. And a seventh son of a seventh son was, like, serious. Whoa. Just serious <laughs> shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. J. McGregor, who keeps the key to the old churchyard where there is the tomb to Kirk, though many say there is nothing in it but a coffin filled with stones, told me that Kirk was taken into the fairy knoll, which she pointed to just across the little valley in front of us, and is there yet, for the hill is full of caverns, and in them the good people have their homes. And she added that Kirk appeared to a relative of his after he was taken, and said that he was in the power of the good people and he couldn't get away. 
But, says he, I can be set free if you will have my cousin do what I tell him when I appear again at the christening of my child in the parsonage. According to Mr. Andrew Lang, who reports the same tradition in more detail in his admirable Introduction to the Secret Commonwealth. So the Secret Commonwealth is a book that Robert Kirk, this minister, wrote about the fairy folk. And he, it's like this enormous book of all of his studies that he wrote about it. And they supposedly he was taken because the fae were pissed that he let all their secrets mm. out. The cousin was, a, uh, was Graham, uh, Graham of Dutchray, and the thing he was to do was to throw a dagger over Kirk's head. So, again, we have the thing of iron, right? So Kirk is a, appears to his cousin at the christening of his child, and this guy, his cousin, is supposed to throw a dagger past Kirk's head. <clears throat> but this cousin was so astonished to see Kirk appear as he said he would that he did not throw the dagger, and so Kirk became a, pre- a perpetual prisoner of the good people. So that's a that's a, a common another common theme is that people who are taken will sometimes appear to one of their relatives and beg to be set free and they'll give this very specific strange instruction that the person has to do and sometimes the person is able to do it and sometimes they're they're not because they're so astonished and other times they're not because uh I mean there's just all kinds of different reasons. So here we go. In Aberfoyle County, the fairy faith, save for the stories about Kirk, which will probably persist for a long time yet, is rapidly passing. In fact, it is almost forgotten now. Up to 30 years ago, as Mr. Taylor explained, before the railway reached Aberfoyle, belief in fairies was much more common. Nowadays, he says, there is no real fairy lore among the peasants. 50 to 60 years ago, there was. And in his opinion, quote, the fairy people of 300 years ago in Scotland were a distinct race by themselves. They had never been human beings. The belief in them was a survival of paganism and not at all an outgrowth of Christian belief in angelic hosts. So this guy's actually saying that the, the whole story about these being fallen angels is a later addition. Yeah. And that 300 years ago, no one thought they were angels. They were actually a separate race in and of themselves. Yeah. That's not it either. Okay. So, this is, uh, let's see, the fairy queens. Libations to fairies. The fairy queen who watches over cows is called Guagach. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea how to say this. In the islands. And she is often seen. In pouring libations to her and her fairies, various kinds of stones, usually with hollows in them, are used. In Lewis, libations are poured to the goddess of the sea called Shoni in order to bring in seaweed. Until modern times in Iona... Similar libations were poured to a god corresponding to Neptune. So here we go. That's Inky. So this is another connection to the Sumerian stuff. Neptune is just the, the Roman name for Inky, the god of the sea. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> In the Highlands. I had the pleasure as well as the great privilege of setting out from Inverness on a bright, crisp September morning in the company with Dr. Alexander Carmichael, the well-known folklorist of Scotland, to study the fairy faith as it exists now in the highlands round Tomaton, a small country village about 20 miles distant. We departed by an early train, and soon reaching the Tomaton country began our search. Dr. Carmichael, for evidence regarding rare and curious Scotch beliefs connected with folk magic, such as blood stopping at a distance and removing moats in the eye at a distance, and I for highland ghosts and fairies. Our first experience was with an old man whom we met on the road between the railway station and the post office who could speak only Gaelic. Dr. Carmichael talked with him for a while and then asked him about fairies 
and he said that there were some living in a cave some way off. But as the distance was rather too far, we decided not to call on them. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that story for some reason. Time in Fairyland. People would be 20 years in Fairyland, and it wouldn't seem more than a night. A bridegroom who was taken on his wedding day was in Fairyland for many generations and coming back thought it was the next morning. He asked where all the wedding guests were and found only one old woman who remembered the wedding at all. Hmm. Yeah, so Rip Van Winkle. Yeah. <laughs> the Fatal Pete Ember. An aged nurse who had fallen fast asleep as she sat by the fire was holding on her knees a newly born babe. The mother, who lay in bed gazing dreamily, was astonished to see their strange little women entering the dwelling. They approached the unconscious child, and she who seemed to be their leader was on the point of lifting it off the nurse's lap, when the third exclaimed, Oh, let us leave this one her, as we have already taken so many. So be it, replied replied the senior of the party in a tone of displeasure. But when that peat now burning on the hearth shall be consumed, her life will surely come to an end. Then the three little figures passed out, or passed out of the house, basically. Mm. The good wife, recognizing them to be fairies, sprang from her bed and poured over the fire all the water she could find and extinguished the half-burnt ember. This she wrapped carefully in a piece of cloth and deposited it at the very bottom of a large chest, which afterwards she always kept locked, right? Knowing that if it ever burned away, yeah. yeah. Years passed, and the babe grew into a beautiful young woman. In the course of time, she was betrothed, and according to custom, not appearing in public at church on the Sunday preceding the day appointed for her marriage, she remained home alone. To amuse herself, she began to search the contents of all the keeping places in the house, and came at last to the chest containing the peat ember. In her haste, the good mother had that day forgotten the key of the chest, which was now in the lock. At the bottom of the chest, the girl found a curious packet containing nothing but a morsel of peat, and this apparently useless thing she tossed away into the fire. When the peat was well kindled, the young girl began to feel very ill, and when the mother returned, she was dying. The open chest and the blazing peat explained the cause of the calamity, and the fairy's prediction was fulfilled. (laughs) (laughs) Entanglement. That's right. (laughs) Results of refusing fairy hospitality. Two women were walking towards the point when one of them, hearing a churning noise going on under a hillock, expressed aloud a wish for some buttermilk. No sooner had she spoken than a very small figure of a woman came out with a bowlful and offered it to her. But the thirsty woman, ignorant of fairy customs and the penalty attending their infringement, declined the kind offer of refreshment and immediately found herself a prisoner in the hillock. She was led to an apartment containing a chest full of meal and a great bag of wool, and was told by the fairy that when she had eaten all the meal and spun all the wool, she would be free to return to her home. The prisoner at once set herself to eating and spinning assiduously, but without apparent result, and despairing of completing the task, consulted a very old man of sad countenance who had long been a captive. He willingly gave her advice, which was to wet her left eye with saliva each morning before she settled down to her task. She followed this advice, and gradually the wool and the meal were exhausted. Then the fairy granted her freedom, but in doing so cursed the old man, and said that she had it in her power to keep him in the hill forever. So again, you had the thing with the eyes yeah. and, the, and the strange magical, you know, like you, you're not seeing what's really happening. And yeah. I, I don't know. It's just but very that's the strange. Other thing, the, the saliva in the eye, like in there, there's the biblical story of Jesus and it yeah. like spits in the guy. Or, right. Spits on his hand. Mud, yeah. And makes it, it in his eye. Blind man see. see. Yeah, exactly. What Very fey. <laughs> okay, this, this one has some. Fae? This one has. <laughs> are you fey? 
This one has some names I can't say. Crod Kylan. This tale was related by Mr. Neil McLeod, the Bard of Sky. Colin was a gentleman of Clan, Clan Campbell in Perthshire who was married to a beautiful maiden who the fairies carried off on her marriage day and on whom they cast a spell which rendered her invisible for a day and a year. She came regularly every day to milk the cows of her sorrowing husband and sang sweetly to them while she milked, but he never once had the pleasure of beholding her, though he could hear perfectly what she sang. At the, expiry, uh, at the expiry of the year, she was, to his great joy, restored to his sight. Hmm. It's like, what is the, even the point of that story? You know, like, it's, in terms of superstition, it doesn't tell you anything, but, but and yet these stories are passed down, that this, this person was made invisible to her husband for a, a year and a day, but she came to milk the cows every morning, and he could hear her singing, but she was completely invisible. But then after a year and a day, she just reappears like what is the point of this story this is one of the things i find fascinating about some of these you don't you don't see there's no moral you see what i'm saying or or maybe what it is is that these stories are so old that the moral is completely lost on modern civilization that there is a moral but it's 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 for a different culture entirely Mm. that's one of the reasons i find them fascinating is that we don't tell stories like this without it conveying some information. So when we find them this strange, I think that this gives us insight into a civilization that is completely gone. Yeah. But there's, and there's also the less interesting possibility that just fragments of the story are missing. Yeah. Or the even more or less interesting <laughs> is that she just ran off and was with some other dude for a year and a day. But see, the, the possible <laughs> moral to this story is that he never he never like – yeah, he, he gave he, up on her he was because sorrow- he kept yeah. hearing her, her song. Right. It's just interesting that, like, they say, you know, because that kind of story would be told that he doesn't, nobody knows that she's going to come back a year and a day later. Right. But they tell you that right at the beginning, that she was just made invisible for a year and a day. Right yeah. at the beginning. But he doesn't know. know. Right. He the doesn't husband know. doesn't know. Yeah. But he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't go get another wife. Right. Because he can still hear her song. Right. That is interesting. I don't know. Maybe that's nobody knows. But but there are plenty of them that don't have. I mean, you can kind of try to work out a little moral there, but <laughs> there are plenty of them that don't have that. At What's all. the moral here? <laughs> Milk the freaking cows. <laughs> Sing while you work. That's right. Nature is of fairies. I believe that fairies exist as a tribe of spirits and appear to us in the form of men and women. People who saw fairies can yet describe them as appear and and they appeared as dressed in green. Now see, this is it. So in Scotland they're dressed in green. In Ireland they see them in red. Hmm. No doubt there are fairies in other countries as well as here. In my experience, there was always a good deal of difference between the fairies and the hosts. Okay, so in this case, I'll explain this. The hosts they see as the fae of the sky. The fairies, or what he's calling the fairies here, are the people of the ground, underneath the ground, in the hills, in the forts. Mm -hmm. The hosts in this, when they refer to hosts, they're talking about beings in the sky. The fairies were supposed to be living without material food, whereas the hosts were supposed to be living upon their own booty. Or, or uh, what that means, I think, is loot. Yeah. Generally, the hosts were evil and the fairies good, though I or have bounty, heard. Maybe. Yeah. Generally, the hosts were evil and the fairies good, though I have heard that the fairies used to take cattle and leave their old men rolled up in the hides. Think about that. They'd take a cow, but its skin would be there with an ancient fairy rolled up in it. It's weird. Cattle mutilations. Yeah. One night, an old witch was heard to say to the fairies outside the fold... We cannot get anything, get anything tonight. The old men who were left behind in the hides of the animals taken usually disappeared very suddenly. I saw two men who used to be lifted by the host. So they would also they tell these stories about people who are just picked up out of the sky. This is where the whole alien abduction thing comes mm-hmm. into play. 
They were lifted by the host and they would be carried from south east as far as Barra Head and as far north as Harris. So they're talking about hundreds of miles here, I think. Sometimes when these men were ordered by the host to kill men on the road, they would kill instead either a horse or a cow. For in that way, so long as an animal was killed, the injunction of the host was fulfilled. So they could show blood on their arrow. Hmm. So here you have like demands of sacrifice and the person would shoot a cow and be like, I totally killed them. See the blood? And it would trick the hosts into believing that he had done what they asked. Yeah. The ferry belt. I heard of an apprentice to a carpenter who was working with his master at the building of a boat a little distance from his house and near the sea. He went to work one morning and forgot a certain tool which he needed in the boat building. He returned to his carpenter shed to get it because you got to bring all your tools to work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and found the shed filled with ferrymen and women. Upon seeing him, they ran away so greatly confused that one of the women forgot her belt and he picked it up. In a little while, she came back and asked him to give it to her, but he refused to do so. Thereupon, she promised him that he should be made master of his trade wherever his lot should fall without serving further apprenticeship. On that condition, he gave her the belt and rising early next morning, he went to the yard where the boat was a building and put in two planks so perfectly that when his master arrived and saw them, he said to him, are you aware of anybody being in the building yard last night? For I see by the work done that I am more likely to be an apprentice to that person than who put in those two planks, whoever he is. Was it you that did it? The reply was in the affirmative. And the apprentice told his master the circumstances under which he gained the rapid mastership of his trade. So, so she offered him the mastership of the trade yeah, so to he give was, her belt back. Yeah, because she came and asked him. So this is, this is another common thread in the story, that if you can manage to steal an article of their clothing, like so as opposed to giving them some article of clothing, if you can manage to get one of them, like the hat or the belt, then not only can you pass amongst them unmolested and undamaged and not blinded and all that kind of stuff, but if they, if they demand it back or they ask it back from you, you have to give it willingly. And so if you refuse, they will offer you all kinds of stuff in order the stories will say, you know, you know, they they come and ask for the belt and you just say, No, I'm not gonna give it to you, and they'll be like, Oh, I'll give you all this, and you give them the belt, and they give you that thing, whatever nah, it is. I keep the belt. <laughs> I keep the belt. <laughs> it's like the Deathly Hallows. Again, Harry Potter, right? Right. Is it like the Deathly Hallows allows like the, the cloak <laughs> allows him to pass right. before death without being So harmed. it depends on what you want. And so the person in this story found it far more he didn't want to be able to pass amongst the fairies unmolested yeah. he wanted to be master of the carpentry but see if you gain something like that then that's the thing that you want to pass down to your children don't ever yeah don't ever give this belt give away, this away. And then, of course in the story the grandson gives the belt away for nothing or yeah. whatever yeah it's just, there are stories like that too but might give it to somebody who knew what it was yeah okay Marianne McCle uh, McLean of Barra and her testimony. Like, Our next, like Voldemort. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Our next witness to testify is a direct descendant of the ancient McNeils of Barra. Her name now is Marianne McLean, but she lives in the mountainous center of Barra at Upper Borv. She is many years younger than the men who have testified, and one of the most industrious women on the island. It was already dark and past dinner time when we entered her cottage, and so, as we sat down before a blazing peat fire, she at once offered us some hot milk and biscuits, which we were only too glad to accept. And as we ate, we talked first about our hard climb in the darkness across the mountains, and through the thick heather bushes, and then about the big rock which has a keyhole in it. This is why I wanted to read this. A big rock which has a keyhole in it, for it contains a secret entrance to, fairy, to a fairy palace. We had examined it in the twilight as we came through the mountain to pass, which it guards. And my guide, Michael, assured me that more than one islander crossing at the hour we were had seen some of the fairies near it. 
We waited in front of the big rock in hopes one might be appear for our benefit, but in spite of our strong belief that the fairies were there, not a single one would come out. Perhaps they came and we couldn't see them. Who knows? Hmm. A rock with a keyhole in it. I think that's... Yeah, so they were basically standing by the the door just like... Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nope. There's no secret here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the guy was like, you know what? If we don't leave, we might get taken. And... Hell no. <laughs> All right. (laughs) My father and grandfather knew a man who was carried by the hosts from South Uist here to Bara. I understand when the hosts take away earthly men, they require another man to help them. See, this is interesting. But the hosts must be spirits. My opinion is that they are both spirits of the dead and other spirits of not dead people. A child was taken by the hosts and returned after one night and one day. And found at the back of the house with the palms of its hands in the holes in the wall and no life in its body. What? <clears throat> like they found like so they found the kid with his hands stuck in holes of the wall, hanging there from the wall at the back of the house, dead, after having disappeared. You know, strange story. It was dead in spirit. It is believed that when people are dropped from a great height by the host, they are killed by the fall. As to fairies, my firm opinion is that they are spirits who appear in the shape of human beings. Oh, yeah, I just I just had stopped that. So, yeah, I don't know which way it was. <laughs> OK, <clears throat> abduction of a bridegroom. I have heard it from old people that a couple newly married were on their way to the home of the bride's father. And for some unknown reason, the groom fell behind the procession and seeing a fairy dwelling open along the road was taken into it. No one could ever find the least trace of where he went and all hope of seeing him again was given up. The man remained with the fairies so long that when he returned, two generations had disappeared during the lapse of time. The township in, when his, in which his bride's house used to be was depopulated and in ruins for upwards of 20 years. But to him, the time had just seemed only a few hours, and he was just as fresh and youthful as when he went in the fairy dwelling. So, like, he vanishes. Two generations go by, and the town where the house was that they were actually going to is completely in ruins and had been for over 20 years when he returned, and he looked exactly the same as he had when he disappeared. Mm. So I like I, this makes me wonder, like, how many people that are getting 411 are going to appear 100 years from now looking exactly the same as they did? Oh, dude, that's that's crazy. You know what I'm saying? It's craziness. <laughs> that is a really cool idea. <laughs> OK. So this is this is from an this is an excerpt of uh, of what he recorded from something that he found that was from even more ancient writings. So these people were talking in the 1800s or so, and he was just putting this in the book. He says the people or the, what he was putting in there that he was reading in these writings, the people of those times were full of music and dancing and stories and traditions. So these people uh, more than a hundred years before this guy was writing this book are talking about even more ancient people. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. The people of those times were full of music and dancing stories and traditions. The clerics have extinguished these, may ill befall them. And what have the clerics put in their place? Belief about creeds and disputations about denominations and churches. It is they who have put the cross round the heads and the entanglements round the feet of the people. The people of Galedom of today are a near perishing for lack of the famous feats of their fathers. The clerics have suppressed every noble custom among the people of Galedom, precious, precious customs that will never return, never again. Hmm. So this is a... Not everybody thought this way, but this is how some of the ancient Gaelic people thought of what they thought Christianity was doing to the traditions of their 
of their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' 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 fathers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That they were losing them never to return. But that's what – I think that's what happens to every civilization. You just lose stuff and you just – you don't – like things that are in the social context are just lost. You know, people 100 years from now are going to read about social things that happened today and not understand them at all. Yep. And not have the context. So – And yet there are some things that survive across all of these ages that we still understand. Like the story of Gilgamesh has stuff in it that we still think is badass because there are certain things. But again, as you're reading it, the stuff you don't understand probably is socially contexted in the age in which it was written. Right. The following prayer surviving to our own epoch is most interesting. It shows, in fact, pure paganism. And we may judge it. Um, we may judge from it that the ancient Manx people regarded Mananan, the great Tuatha de Danan god, in his true nature as a spiritual being, a lord of the sea, okay, mm-hmm. Inky, and as belonging to the complex fairy hierarchy. This prayer was given to me by a Manx woman nearly 100 years old who is still living. She said it had been used by her grandfather and that her father prayed the same prayer, substituting St. Patrick's name for Mananan's. And then... The prayer is given in Gaelic, which I'm not even going to try to read. <clears throat> but the translation is, Mananan, son of Lear, who blessed our island, bless us and our boat while going out, and better coming in with living and dead fish in the boat. That was the prayer. That's the strange <laughs> translation of this prayer, right? Yeah. It seems to me that no one of the various theories so f- no one of the various various theories so far advanced accounts in itself for the fairy faith there is always a missing factor an unknown quantity which has yet to be discovered no doubt the pygmy theory explains a good deal so pygmy theory is uh, does he explain this here the pygmy theory yeah okay <clears throat> In some countries, a tradition has been handed down of the times when there were races of diminutive men in existence, being so small that their tiny hands could have used the flint arrowheads and scrapers, which are like toys to us. Hmm. No such tradition exists at the present day in the Isle of Man, but one might have filtered down from the far off ages and become innate in the folk memory. And now, unknown to the Manx peasant, may possibly suggest to his mind the troops of the little people in the shadowy glen or on the lonely mountainside. Again, the rustling of the leaves or the, of the, or the sigh of the wind may be heard by the peasant as a strange and mysterious voice, or the trembling shadow of a bush may appear to him as an unearthly being. Natural facts explainable by modern science may easily remain dark mysteries to those who live quiet lives close to nature, far from sophisticated towns, and whose few years of schooling have left the depths of their being undisturbed, only, as it were, ruffling the shallows. But, so that he gives us the skirp-derp, the skirptard explanation right there, but then he says, but this is not enough. Even let it be granted that nine out of every ten cases of experiences with fairies can be analyzed and explained away by science. There remains this tenth. In this tenth case, one is obliged to admit that there is something at work which we do not understand, some force in play which, as yet, we know not. In spite of ourselves, we feel there's powers that in, or there's powers that's in. These powers are not necessarily what the superstitious call supernatural. We realize now that there is nothing supernatural, so it is, is, that what used to be so-called is simply something we do not understand at present. Our forefathers would have thought the telephone, the x-rays, wireless telegraphy, things of supernatural. It is more than possible that our descendants may make discoveries equally marvelous in the realms of both mind and matter, and that many things, which nowadays seem to be the uh, materialistically minded I'm sorry, which nowadays seem to the materialistically minded the creations of credulous fancy may in the future be understood and recognized as part of the one great scheme of things. 
Some persons are certainly more susceptible than others to these unknown forces. Most people know reliable instances of telepathy and presentiment amongst their acquaintances. It seems not at all contrary to reason that both matter and mind, in knowledge of which we have not yet gone very far after all, may exist in forms as yet entirely unknown to us. <clears throat> after all, beings with bodies and personalities different from our own may well inhabit the unseen world around us. The fairy hound, white as driven snow, may show himself at times amongst his mundane companions. Fenodry may do the farm work for those whom he favors, and the little people may sing and dance in nights in the Colby Glen. Let us not say that it is impossible. <laughs> Dude, that's freaking awesome. I love that. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll stop there with the reading. Uh, we got a little time left to do some discussing. I, f I think that he's exactly right. And this is kind of that, that whole thing that I just read in a sort of archaic way is saying what we say on this show all the time. Yeah. Right. That we don't know everything. We do not actually have the manual for how the universe works final edition. Yeah. And people who pretend that we do are the ones that claim that things like this are ridiculous. Yeah. Right. But that's it's them being ridiculous because what you actually see when you look at the the entirety of human knowledge, all that shows you is how much we don't know. Yeah. And it's true that a lot of it, a lot of these things can be explained. Like when, when there's so many stories or strange things that you think, or that people might say happen and you're like, Oh, well, there's actually a perfectly reasonable, yeah. quote unquote, reasonable explanation for that. But then yeah. there's occasionally one where you're just like, what? Right. Like that, that soundbite we played from a couple of episodes back from the, from the, the general who was talking about UFO reports, yeah. that there is this small percentage yeah. of relatively incredible things that they from very explain. credible people that cannot be explained. And that's what we focus on. Yeah. It's the same with this, right? That nine out of 10 of these can be explained, but there is something there is in those 10th stories it shows us that there's something here that we don't understand, that people are interacting with in some way, some part of the natural world. It's not supernatural because all that word, that word is actually, that word is actually subjective. Supernatural is just anything we don't understand. Right. You know, like you, you have to say. Whatever happens is natural. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's happening, it's natural. Right. That's part so why the great sages say, what is, is. Yeah, it's part of nature. <laughs> the nature of the Right. Universe. In other words, supernatural is not a real thing. Right. This is a word that has been put on things by materialists who are using the manual for how the universe works final edition in order to make it seem ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Supernatural. There is no such thing as supernatural. Yeah. Whatever happens is natural. It's, it, you know, whether yeah. we're doing it or something else is doing it or whatever, it is part of the universe. The universe meaning that word actually meaning everything. Right. right. So, <laughs> yeah. So that, that actually may be a better way to sort of bring, come together with people who are quote unquote materialists. Because really they're, they're what they're, what they really are like, because I guess if there was a different type of material that makes up the spirit realm, that whatever bodies they have in the spirit realm is yeah. a, just a different material. Yeah. It's not material in the, in the sense that uh, of this realm. Right. So 
I'm basically saying the same thing. Like you can get rid of the idea of supernatural, which is which is obviously not true. Right. If it, and you if can it get rid of the exist. idea of material if we don't understand all the nature of all material. Right. In the universe, which would be everything. Everything. What, no matter what. Yeah. What plane or what. What? Yeah. What realm of existence. You know, if this thing that we think of as the material universe is a tiny island inside of a much greater uh, set of existences and all of those contain their own forces and materials. And very can, nice people. Yeah, and, and very nice people, the good folk. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's that's a very uh, – it's a good note to close this show out on, basically. Man, I had a really good question that I was saving, and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> so I'll have to listen to the show and, and then write it down. And then I'll, ask it. I'll ask you next week. In episode 72. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. I think that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you guys very much. Be careful of the Fae, because they're very nice. They're very nice people. <laughs> Not at the Sons of Adam. Which means get back to work. Pick up. Get, well, get back to work, Adamu. <laughs> you are the Sons of Adam and the Sons of Abraham. Get back to work. Uh, get back to work. Get that gold. Go. <laughs> Fairies making me not be able to talk. I love you. Always have. Always well.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.